welcome to the wages of cinema. Yes, the wages of cinema. Yes, that name. Now, first off, before we even get into it, uh, I'd like to actually thank uh, Mr. Matthew Catania for uh, giving us uh, the name to the broad to the broadcast. Or actually, you can, you tried to come up with a name for like three days, and then all of a sudden he just comes out and said, "Oh, wages of cinema." That's right. Basically, what happened was uh, I came up with a list, and the names were either very good or very terrible. They all and had cinema in them. That was what they had in common. That's right. They were all going to be something cinema, something whatever. I mean, originally, my first idea for making it easier was going to be to make it after my blog, which is called The Sanitarium. And no had... ego involved. No, no ego at all. Um, I mean, I would only be bringing in my followers to my blog, which are maybe two people. But followers. Maybe... Yes. <laughs> Don't you sound important. You sounded evil when you said that just now. Well, uh, that's because I am. Now, <laughs> but let's yes, just... it's the wages of cinema. Thank you, Matt Catania, for yes. the wonderful name. Thank you. We owe you exactly a hot dog. Yes, a hot dog. Now, to just tell us about to tell us about ourselves, because you're probably listening, wondering who who the hell are these jerks. Um, my name is Jack. I'm and, Andrew, and that's Andrew. Um, I. Uh, I've been wanting to do like a podcast like this for a long time. And I've wanted to ride Jack's coattails for a long time. So it worked <laughs> out awesomely. Exactly. Exactly. Um, what we, uh, what I've wanted to do for a while, because I do a lot of film stuff in my own time, uh, I write reviews for uh, a couple of movie websites, uh, or primarily one now, and I write some uh, movie reviews on my own, and I make movies, and... Uh, you know, and there are other movie podcasts out there and things like that, but I wanted to maybe try out. I've myself. made a movie. Oh, have you, Andrew? Yeah, with oh. Matt, our friend. That's true. You yes. did make and a movie. And you were in it. Matt. Yeah, and you've made other stuff with Matt as well. Oh, yeah. You're yes. right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't sell yourself short there. Call me off guard. Um, now, Andrew, how? Well, maybe give a little background about yourself. Uh, I am. A teacher of history. Mm -hmm. I just love to watch movies, right. and I meet up with this knucklehead and his wife and a whole bunch of friends, <laughs> and we watch movies, and it's fantastic. Sometimes I play board games, which Knuckleheads. are awesome. Why I oughta <laughs> like like I'm a three, one of the three speeches yes. or something. Yes. <laughs> but uh, it's a lot of fun. Now we just get to talk about the thing that we do all the time. Yeah, we basically uh, one of the things was I, I end up finding myself. Uh, talking to Andrew in person or on the phone and, you know, and the way that we talk about movies, it's just, you know, why not try to bring in millions of people to hear our ramblings? Yeah, which is why we're going to talk about the movies that we just watched in the past week. Very good segue there, Andrew. That was really smooth. You're welcome. <laughs> I'm going to start, uh, alright, I'll start because I watched more movies than you. You, uh, you did, you know, this was actually one of those weeks where, uh, I kind of, let myself down, I guess. I didn't really watch yes, as many movies as I Yes, you let yourself down. Yeah, I let down all the people in my life. Um, but I only watched one full movie while Andrew watched... Uh, watched three. Uh, the first one I watched was Moonstruck. This is your place. That's right. So this is where we were going. Yeah. You know, we had a deal. You told me if I came with you to the opera, then, then you'd leave me alone forever. And I came with you. Now, I'm going to marry your brother, and you're going to leave me alone forever. Right? A 
person can can see what they've messed up in their life, and they can change the way they do things, and they could even change their luck. So maybe maybe my nature does draw me to you. That don't mean I have to go with it. I can take hold of myself, and I can say yes to some things and no to other things that are going to ruin everything. I can do that. Otherwise, you know what? What good is this stupid life that God gave us? I mean, for what? Are you listening to me? Yeah. Everything seems like nothing to me now. I guess I want you in my bed. I, you're probably thinking, who hasn't seen Moonstruck? But and I'm really far behind. But Jack hasn't seen it either, no, so I have one up. I have not. Seen, you know, it's it's a weird thing. I don't remember watching the full movie. It's likely maybe I did when I was a real little kid. And I just don't have a memory of it. I I remember seeing certain scenes from it. I know that Nicolas Cage has a very Italian accent in the movie. Yes. Is that right? Yes, he does. And he has only one hand. Oh, really? Which is very Nicolas Cage. <laughs> but it, it barely features in the movie except for, for backstory. It's not right. like he has a humorous scene with a fake hand. No. But he... Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't go like, uh, give me three. No. Uh... But he's fantastic in it. It was Nicolas Cage doing Nicolas Cage before he went Nicolas Cage, you know. Right before Vampire's Kiss. Yes. Vampire's Kiss, by the way. Check it out. Yeah, that that one's a doozy. That one is where I think that's probably the first time we got the full Nicolas Cage. Like, he was kind of on the cusp of it, maybe. He, you know, had done Raising Arizona, which is, like, came out the same year as Moonstruck. Yeah. The difference is Moonstruck actually was... Uh, you know, like a big Academy Award type movie, like Cher got an Oscar, Olympia Dukakis got an Oscar. Right. And it's a, I, as I can, from what I know about it, it's kind of like a sweet romance type of story, right? I, I wouldn't call it sweet, but what it is that makes it that makes it stand out is that it's kind of a, a middle-aged romance in a way. The characters are established as being like in their 30s. I know that's not like middle-aged, but still they're much older than any couple you'd see nowadays. The interesting and, thing, though, is that yeah. Nicolas Cage was in his 20s when he did it. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. He, well, he must have made himself look He acted older. so well that I thought he was 39. But uh, but you enjoyed the movie. Yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. And uh, it has all these... Uh, what it is, basically, is... is not, I wouldn't say a commentary, but it's, it has to do with romance in all different forms between uh, couples that have already that have been married for years and about affairs and marri- and marriage in general. Uh, but it's really entertaining. It just holds up really well. I mean, you can you can see it now. You'll just love it. And it's a great romance. Great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad it wasn't, uh, you know, like several Nicolas Cage movies from the past years that we don't yes. need to go into at this moment. But maybe we'll even talk about that later in the show. Everything I hear about Nicolas Cage, though, is that he, he's always been intense. Like, yeah. even from when he was really young. But it seems like nowadays he... I mean, I haven't seen too much Nicolas Cage. I haven't seen Port, uh, Bad Lieutenant. or And I haven't seen the most recent Ghost Rider, if that's even relevant. But, I mean, he's always been intense yeah. from what I've heard. But it just seems like sometimes he can rein it in, and sometimes people just let him go. Yeah, and some, well, sometimes it depends on the character. It depends on who's doing it, what kind of project it is. You can tell when he's just showing up and putting in the minimum amount of effort. Uh, you know, in other but words, is his but is his minimum like being crazy? Not even that. No, there are times where he'll just be in a movie and he'll be 
kind of bland and forgettable. Um, there are some, there are some movies like uh, there's a movie called Next. Uh, oh yeah, I remember Next. With Next, or even uh, Bangkok Dangerous, which looked like it. I remember that. Kind of I barely awesome. remember that too. Yeah, see, there are a lot of straight to video stuff. Basically, the problem was Nicholas. Oh, in the Left Behind series. Well, he that, did that well, didn't he? Did, well, he did one Left Behind movie this year. Oh and right. My mom actually, for some reason, saw it and said it was the worst this year. Wow. Um, but when he does good work, he does good work. And there was actually a movie which I saw the previous week, which technically I can't talk about in full because it's about to actually come out in later this week. It's this movie called Dying of the Light. And uh, Nicolas Cage, it's actually more of a drama. It's about an albino who um, can't be out in the sun. And uh, he just gets horrible sunburn and it's about his last days. Uh, uh, your your movie sounds like I don't know whether that would be better than the movie I saw or just something <laughs> totally different. Keep uh, write it down. We'll use it for next time. Exactly. Um, but again, we're getting off track. The point is, Nicolas Cage, he's a force to be reckoned with, but he makes a lot of bad. Right. And Cher was great in Moonstruck too. That's believe great. it or not. Well, no, she can be. You know, I, it's the only movie I've seen her in. So she I'll. She got I'll... the Oscar for it. So I'll oh, she did. For it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. Now, whether it was a gimme, I don't know. But anyway, um, the movie I saw this week was uh, Glengarry Glen Ross. All right. Now, this now, wasn't the first time I'd seen this movie, but I, and I've actually seen this movie several times, and I've seen scenes from the movie many times. Right. Um, for those of you Alec that, Baldwin well, in the beginning. Alec Baldwin in the beginning of the movie. Basically, if you go to YouTube and just type in Alec Baldwin, uh, Glengarry, you will get to see one of the most hair-raising monologues ever. Um, That's the only word I can use to describe it properly. Um, Basically, it it takes place uh, in large part in this office, and it it concerns these guys who, they're kind of real estate salesmen, but it's not like they sell, like, just regular old houses. They sell land, and they do really shady tactics to try to get people to... uh, buy the land. Like and it's places. really a high-pressure environment. It's a very high-pressure environment. Basically, the main conflict is, uh, you know, if you're number one in sales this week, you get a Cadillac. Second place, you get a pair of steak knives. And third place, you're fired. Well, how many people are in the office? Uh, there, there would have to be, at most, <laughs> three people for this to work out. <laughs> no, well, there are... Um, there are four salesmen in the movie. There's Al Pacino. Uh, he's Ricky Roma, which is kind of like, you know, Al Pacino shows up and he's Al Pacino. Uh, Jack Lemon <laughs> is Shelley Levine, who, uh, if you've seen uh, any time The Simpsons have the character Gil, uh, he's the guy who's like, oh, come on, I just want to make a sale. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's basically taken from Sh- Jack Lemon playing Shelley Levine in this movie. And then there's also Ed Harris and Alan Arkin. And they're like the other two kind of supporting characters. The other two. The other two. And basically the main plot of the movie concerns uh, like a robbery involving these like sale leads uh, to try to get, you know, more customers and, you know, they try to find out who did it. In a weird way, it's interesting that the movie came out in 1992 and, you know, that same year Reservoir Dogs came out. And they're both kind of like, you could watch these two movies back to back and it would make a really interesting double feature because they're both in large part, set in one location. It's about yeah, uh, you know who set, who who did this crime, who did this thing. That's well, Glenn Greg, Glenn, Glenn Ross is based on a play. 
That's right. And that's yeah, usually yeah. how movies based on plays are. I mean, the play is in one room. And, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah. I mean, they opened up the play a little bit. Um, just like, I guess, Reservoir Dogs, that was written so that that could be done really cheaply. Right. And then they got a little more money, and then there you go. But So I guess Reservoir Dogs has a theatrical feel. Like, not the- theatrical as a movie theater. We're talking about, like, on stage. Exactly. Theater. I never thought of it that way before. That's actually... Someone should oh, make yeah. Reservoir Dogs. I think the... Reservoir Dogs has been performed on stage. Oh. Yeah. In fact, I... And, this will be another tease for something coming up later, but uh, Michael Fassbender actually uh, uh, once performed in like a production of Reservoir Dogs. Huh. Like, he did like a theatrical stage version. I don't know what character he was, but he was the dog. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but, yeah, so Glenn Gary Glenn Gary Ross is amazing. It's yes. it's it's one of those movies where you get to just watch. Uh, actors just chewing up scenery with dialogue that uh, you know, I don't know if you'd want your parents around when you're watching that movie, to put it another way yeah. like, just like with Tarantino David Mamet loves his F word that, that goes flying all over the place in that movie um, but it's really funny it's really savage you feel, and there are a lot of like, Jack Lemmon is incredible in the movie, like why he didn't get an Oscar is just uh Kind of one of those things. Well, if we had a if we had a dollar for every person who deserved an Oscar, then uh, you'd have a lot of dollars. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I don't know what you could buy with those dollars, but we could buy an Oscar. Right. Uh, so anyway, I'll go on to my next two movies, which we could pretty much talk about together. I yeah. saw uh, Charlie Chaplin's Gold Rush mm-hmm. and Modern Times. I just saw oh. Modern Times before I got here. Now, had you seen it? Yes, I'd seen okay. both movies before. And yeah, you just felt like watching Modern Times again. Yeah, I've, uh, I mean, I had seen them, the last time I saw them was years ago. And I don't know what it was. I was, I was just in the library looking for movies, and I remembered The Gold Rush, and the one scene that stuck out oh, for me. Oh, wow, you, you were there for that? Yes. <laughs> I was with the original 49ers. <laughs> and I got the gold. Are you a leprechaun? Or? I thought that's like the voice of like a prospector or something. All right. Anyway, uh, so he, uh, I, I saw the Gold Rush on on the uh, shelves, and I remembered the one scene where there the two guys wrestling for the gun, yeah. and Charlie Chaplin is desperately trying to duck out of the is way. Is that where they're like in the house? They're in the cabin. Yeah, yes. they're in the cabin, and like this, like, there's a big snowstorm, and they can't really leave. Yeah, and they're running out of food. That's right. Yeah, and they're like. They, like, I think, I don't know if it's Charlie Chaplin, the other guy pictures the other guy as food. Yes, that comes yeah. later. It's oh. it's like the classic cartoon bit where there are like two yeah. people on a desert island and one of them looks at the other and he looks like a chicken. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, I this may have inspired all of that, for all I know. But Gold Rush is about, basically, the gold rush in the Yukon. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Chaplin is up there searching for gold. Yeah. Uh, and he just runs into all these people who either want to eat him <laughs> or... Uh, Generally, it's like everybody in a Charlie Chaplin movie doesn't like him. Yeah, well, that's kind of the thing. And then, you know, he's also trying to get the girl. Right. And, you know, in this movie especially, um, excuse me, he doesn't really um, have a, you know, like he wants to get the girl, but the girl's with someone else, if I remember correctly. Right. And and she, um, she kind of toys with him to kind of get back at him. But at the end, yeah. uh, at the end, I'm not going to tell you what happens at the end. No. But still, they're... Uh, the, the gold there are rush fantastic is, things in that. The, the thing about the gold rush is that you could say, I mean, I'll even say that probably City Lights 
you know, if we're talking, like, that's probably his best movie. Just well, in terms of being kind of perfectly constructed. But the Gold Rush is just so much fun. It it's is just, a lot of it, fun. It's probably his most entertaining movie, just in terms of. Now, here's a question: Did you watch what version of it? Did you watch? I was. I watched the. Two. I watched the Criterion version. The but, but it was it was more like the original. So it didn't have that narrator. No, so it I didn't have the narration. Because when I because what happened was with Charlie Chaplin and that movie, he originally you know put out in 1925 as a silent movie. There was no narration, obviously. Then he re-released the movie in 1942, and for some reason he decided to go back and add like narration to it. And yeah. I remember that was the fir- when I tried to watch the movie for the first time, it was that version, and I actually stopped it. I, I didn't finish watching the movie then. I've seen a clip from it, and it seems like one of those shorts that you put in front of a movie, <laughs> where it's like, oh, it's this like, is how you pan for gold. Here's, here's, he's going up the mountain right now. Yes. <laughs> and, and it's just kind of dumb, but... Uh, and I knew about that, so I chose the version that was I saw just the, silent. Yeah, I saw it on I saw it on the big screen maybe a few years ago, and you know that's that's the way to go. Yes. If you want to see him playing with his potatoes, uh, you know, big and large. You mean the the dinner rolls? Sorry, the dinner rolls. Whatever. The, yeah, that that was. You funny. lose five points, Jack. <laughs> but there's there, but the point is there are so many memorable scenes. There's these two guys wrestling for the gun and Charlie Chapwood's trying to get out of the way, but no matter where he goes, they're yeah, wrestling the gun towards exactly. him and they're eating the boot that they've boiled. Of course, that is the classic thing and they're making the laces. And... Yes, and he eats the, the laces like spaghetti and... Uh... <laughs> it's like... It's like it, it, it prob- I have to wonder if Werner Herzog watched the Gold Rush and that's where maybe he got the idea for eating his shoe was maybe but there's <laughs> but there there are other things like that role dancing scene which is actually in kind of a, a dream in within the context of the movie hmm. but the thing that i just love that i love about Ch- chaplin films and about silent cinema in general is about how when you're watching it you realize you don't really need dialogue or, not always, no. I mean, no. you can see that the characters are sometimes talking to each other. Yeah, but, but it's not it's important not... at all what they're saying. You can oh, generally figure out what they're talking about. And when you can't, there's a, t- there's a title card, which is usually very sparing and gives, like, very specific information. Yeah, well, that, but one, even, that one was great at. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, the best silent movies have very few title cards, and the worst ones just have one every five seconds. Yeah, see, now... Like, it's funny you mention that because really fast uh, before we go into the modern times, uh, I, I actually recently a few years a few, a few weeks back watched uh, a Fritz Lang movie called uh, Doctor Mabuse. Mabuse. Is that how you? I think it's. It? I think that's. I thought it was Mabuse. That's how. That's how Slavoj Žižek said it. Mabuse. Well, Slavoj. The point is, is. But the point is. Fritz this Lang. Is, this is a four-hour silent. Like it's a four and a half-hour silent epic. And it's it's kind of incredible. if anyone was to make four and a half hour silent epic, it would be Fritz Lang. Yes, um, and it has a fair amount of title cards, but they actually do help to kind of tell the story. In a way, it's almost kind of like his uh, like a comic book movie or something huh. because it's about like this arch villain who's kind of terrorizing uh, this like city. Right. And, like this cop is trying to stop him. Um, so in that sense, it's kind of like a piece of pulp fiction or something like early before there was even like comic books in that case it works but generally speaking you're right that the less title cards you have the more you can tell just with pictures the better yeah and chaplin like 
and Chaplin does that so well through by moving his body and using pantomime. Yeah. And the thing about silent movies is that you have to exaggerate. You, mm-hmm. uh, you, if you were to act that way in a modern picture, people would wonder if there was something wrong with you. Right. And but you don't even notice it in a silent film because you you see it and you understand what the characters are saying. Uh, when they point at something or if they're nodding their head or shaking their head, then you could understand the gist of what they're saying. It's only for very complex ideas that you can't communicate with your body or with your hands that you have to use a title card. And and that's unavoidable. Uh, There are a lot of silent films from the era that that just weren't as good as that, uh, that just use them all the time. And, when you look at these characters and you see them gesture and smile and uh, and point, you realize that cinema was doing great before sound. Yeah. And people could figure out what was going on. Oh, yeah. Well, Not to say that cinema was ruined by sound. There are, but, some, there are some critics who, at the time, kind of thought that. People thought, like, you, you bring in this, like vocal thing how dare you this is not how movies are supposed to be made and the funny a thing lot of that, th- things that are newer like well, that people and the thing was, say that. there were a lot of people in in the sound era who really couldn't quite catch up with that i mean to uh, a certain extent chaplin couldn't catch up with it um no but the thing was though you watch uh city lights and then as we'll talk about in a minute, modern times though he was still making kind of quasi he was making mostly silent films in that sense but he was having fun with it. So, like, in City Lights, you have the scene at the beginning where uh, the guy's addressing, uh, like, the townspeople. Right, and, and it's, hear, it's like, just kazoo noises whenever he speaks. Yeah. But um, you don't need to hear what he's saying. It's no. like, you get, like, oh, he's giving a speech. But it's it's, it's funnier. Yes, you know? it is a little funny. I, and let's get get into Modern Times. Modern Times is technically not a silent film because it has a soundtrack. <laughs> There's still a lot of things in that movie that don't require dialogue. Right. I mean, it's it fits our definition of a silent movie because there's no dialogue. There's ba- barely any speaking except for little parts. But I mean, and then you have that. Song. But a tr- right, uh, that too, uh, which means it's technically not a silent film. It has its own soundtrack. It uses recorded sound. It's its own kind of. Right, piece. and it's basically uh, it was made in 1935 or 36. Yeah, around then. And. Uh, sound had already been established back in 29, I think. Yeah. yeah. So seven years later, Chaplin's still doing his sort of silent uh, thing and doing making great movies with it, City Lights, uh, Modern Times. But, I mean, the only sound film that really hit of his was The Great Dictator, and that has problems well, Chaplin of its had, own. Well, Chaplin had other issues in terms of getting more movies to connect. I mean, part of that was because of his reputation. He got into a lot of trouble... Uh, because he was claiming that he was like an anti, uh, no, not anti, but that he was a communist, and he basically had left America 
at a certain point. And then so a lot of his later movies kind of suffered because of that. But I, I do get what you're saying. The Great Dictator is the last movie that you know, like everybody's seen. Yeah, I mean it's I, it's probably his last famous movie, and that's fully sound. He's he talks, and everybody has dialogue, oh. and there are great parts of it. It's a great movie, but technically, it suffers from his inexperience with recording dialogue and with sound yeah. because he's not. He, Charlie Chaplin is a great silent actor, but oh, he course. doesn't quite come up to. Uh, he's he's not quite as great when you're actually recording his voice. No, well that was also the case with uh, Buster Keaton as well. Yeah, now I think the one person who really could have trans like uh, who transitioned well from silent to sound, and although most of his career was in sound, was Hitchcock. Right. Because he started out in silent films, and when you watch uh, the movie The Lodger, that one is like a great silent movie. Um, but he was able to parlay that kind of visual experience into um, the uh, the world of uh, of, of talking pictures. Right. Talkies. The talkies. The talkies. And I just picture a bunch of talking mouths. and. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, but, but Modern Times, great movie. It's, it's great. So wonderful. You, you should see it if you haven't, because it's it's still funny. It's it's, it's not so dependent w- on gags, and it's not dependent on you know one-liners or anything. It's just the situations that Charlie Chaplin puts himself in are inherently funny. Well, it's so resonant, too. I mean, I... Yeah, that's what I was just thinking as I was watching. It's pretty... It's still dealing with the issues that we're dealing with right now. It's about people living who are needy, who live in this world of plenty. Yeah. Uh, about not having a job or trying and trying to survive from day to day. Yeah, just, but it's still yeah. hilarious. I always think of that scene where he's on the assembly line working and he, uh, I think makes, he gets himself caught up in the machine. Yes. And I was thinking, man, he, he, he must've hurt himself or something trying to go through those giant gears. <laughs> Uh, because it's Chaplin doing all these things, and he's he's not holding back anything. No. Uh, but he's going through this machine. Uh, that's actually he actually did it. There's no really special effect. It's yeah. just sort of you know this kind of low key stunt, but still must have been awkward to do because oh, his yeah. body turns into goes through this S curve. And not only that, but also he was one of those directors early on, uh, like like Kubrick was famous for later who would do, like, take after take after take until he got it to what he wanted it to be in his movies. I didn't know so, that. Yeah, he, he, like, the reason that we only have so many Chaplin movies is because he took years making, like, each movie. So you have to wonder how many times he put himself through that. Yeah. And, like, he would do that and be like, no, 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 that wasn't correct. I'm going to do that again. Yeah, I mean, because it's him on the screen the whole time. Exactly. So he suffers the most out of everybody, including, and then you have to, take into account that he composed the music for each of his films. Exactly. I mean, it's it's incredible what the guy did. And I don't think there's anybody since then who's done quite as much as Charlie Chaplin. Nope. Not quite like that. Um, so Charlie Chaplin, he's awesome. Yes, Charlie Chaplin's really awesome. So that's that topic. Now, let's get into what we're real, what, what some of the meaty stuff of today. Um, which is, We're going to talk about trailers. That too. Thank yes. you for reminding me that. See, that is, well, that is pretty meaty. Thank you for Yeah, we have me. to talk about the huge thing that's going on right now. Uh, I know. Which how, is, how about like that, uh, that trailer for that one movie? What Jurassic was? World. All right, here's the thing I want to bring up <laughs> about Jurassic what, World. I, I know you were going to talk about it, but I was just humoring you. Yes. 
Keep humoring me, Jack. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about Jurassic World because I've seen... There have only been three Jurassic Park movies before this, right? That's right. Okay, the first one... Uh, it's a classic. Right. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but here's the issue I have. Jurassic World. Uh, the, the, the stuff in it seems really good. They're, they finally opened up this, uh, this theme park. Yeah, the, the that they've of, been all that they've been talking about since the first movie. Yeah, the plan, the the, the dream of John Hammond in our twenty first century super capitalist industrial civilization has come true. We finally got dinosaurs, and we can all see them. And you know, there's a giant fish dinosaur, uh, and it, and it looks pretty good. Yeah. And he, but here's the thing. Okay. After three movies, we're assuming that all of this is canon. Uh, first Jurassic Park movie. How did it end? Everybody except four people died, uh, killed by raptors and a T-Rex. Yeah. Uh, second movie. Oh, we're going back to the island. We're going to bring back a T-Rex. Half of the people we sent there died, and the T-Rex got loose and killed a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Uh, the third movie. Uh, well, in that one, that's, <laughs> that one's more like... I don't really like part three. No, but still, let's let's talk about what happens in the movie. Well, what because happens is basically A ton of that... people die by dinosaurs. Yeah, well, there are still dinosaurs on this island. The people, like, these kids are, like, they, they're doing something nearby this island, and they get, like, stuck, and so they have to be rescued. Right, some people have to be res rescued off the dinosaur island. Still, a lot of people die. And so then they decide, in the fourth movie, from what we know, mm -hmm. to go ahead and build this dinosaur theme park, and we're going to make a big hybrid dinosaur. Oh, boy. Yeah. And yeah. in re I don't want to talk about real life because. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's first of all, we have Park. dinosaurs. We're, we're with, Reality kind of went out the window. We're dealing with Steven Spielberg here, you know. Yes, we are. But still, after three movies of people getting killed by dinosaurs, <laughs> when is it going to be enough that we could say, you know, maybe we should reconsider the dinosaurs in re in modern times idea? Because now everybody's embraced the idea after about 200 deaths. I'm now. I'm. <laughs> I mean, the Hindenburg crashed and 35 people died. That don't quote me on that. But oh, now we can't have air travel by Zeppelin. Uh, yeah. so <laughs> I would say that the um, uh, I'm sure that they'll find some kind of hackneyed. Of course, they'll find it. some reason. They'll for find it, but... some reason for it, and I mean, the thing is, it looks like from the look of the trailer, none of the original actors are coming back. Like, you don't have Sam Neill. I don't care you don't about have Sam Neill. Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum's awesome. Cause... Well, yeah, but I don't, I don't care about him. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chris Pratt. I don't think the reason we have a fourth Jurassic Park movie is to see Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum <laughs> hey, or Laura Dern. She was in that. Or who Laura Dern was in that. Yes, right. Laura Dern. As much as great. as great as Laura Dern is, I don't think we're seeing a, anyone wanted a Jurassic Park four because of no, any of those people. Like, it seems like kind of a sequel slash they call it a reboot now. So basically, it's a way of rebooting the franchise, even though it's still in the world. That's why I could tell you're frustrated by it because it's still the fourth Jurassic Park movie, but. It almost looks like it's trying to start fresher, maybe. Maybe, but I mean, still. I mean, the, my <laughs> my problem watching it. Um, this is more of a technical thing. It doesn't look like it has. Uh, um, 
Like, in the original movie, you had a really strong mix of dinosaurs that were CGI. And right. Right, right the birth of CGI, and they still hold up. Like, Jurassic Park holds up in that sense. I'll but give then, you that, yeah. But then you also have practical dinosaurs, and they look really cool. This new movie only has CGI dinosaurs, and some of them looked a little bit faker than even, like, the dinosaurs from 93. Maybe my memory is playing tricks on me. Right. I'm not too concerned about that. I mean, like, CGI is going to be CGI. And, and you can have good CGI and you can have bad CGI. But so you're, still, so you, we... You, you, you protest the movie even existing. No, I don't mind that it exists. It just seems that this, after... In a, in the same world where hundreds of people have died by dinosaur, yeah, we're now opening up a park full of dinosaurs, yeah. to a bunch of small, tasty humans, <laughs> and we're not just and we're not just doing that. We're making a hybrid dinosaur, which right. can never go wrong. Yeah, it's like the th- other three movies never even happened. Everybody has such a short memory. Well, that... well, that's what the studios are kind of hoping for, or that you know, kids don't really. Jurassic Park, that's an old movie. You keep it down down there. (laughs) Get off my lawn. Um, I'm trying to watch Jurassic Park. Okay. Okay. So we have Jurassic World. Now, of course, let's talk about the other big movie. Pan. Well, yeah, right. So Pan. (laughs) You haven't seen the trailer for this. I have not. So I know, okay, so I know that Rooney Mara is one of the actors. Um, Do you know who she is? She is playing Tiger Lily. Okay. See, I mean, I... I've seen versions of Peter Pan, I've seen Hook, I've seen the animated Disney, but this look, is, are they trying to do like a gritty Peter it's Pan It's not movie? gritty, no. Okay. It's just it's just a prequel. Uh, uh, but I'm not disappointed in it because of that. <clears throat> it's actually, it was one of the better trailers that I've seen, <clears throat> because it had an inkling of a story in it. That's good. So, uh... I like stories. And Hugh Jackman plays the villain, uh-huh. I am to assume. Uh, well, he has from I saw the poster. He has a mustache. Yes, he's a villain. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I would wager. That's he's just movie one hundred and one. I'm sure he's playing. Uh, if he's not playing Hook, he's playing someone like Hook. Yes, he is playing someone like Hook. Okay. And the guy who is playing Cap, I assume, will become Captain Hook. It will probably kind of surprise you. I don't know who he is, but he looks the opposite of what you expect. Okay. You got, uh, but I won't say too much more about it. If you haven't seen it, then... No, I know the director is this guy, Joe Wright, who... Uh, I like Joe Wright a lot. Um, Joe Wright is, uh, for those of you who don't know, he did a movie called Hannah a few years ago, which is really good. And, uh, yeah, just really talented guy. Um, now let's talk about the uh, elephant in the room, or should I say the pun? Yeah, Star Wars. We're talking about Star Wars now. <laughs> Sorry, I was trying to be cute. Uh, um, basically, uh, I want to first, I don't want to talk about Star Wars right now and the whole backlash about Star Wars. I want to talk about your reaction to the trailer. I wasn't uh, going to talk about the backlash. Like, oh, good. Mean? Because I didn't want to talk about that. Okay, good. So let's talk, let's start with your reaction to the trailer. The, the, the thing starts up and you see this, this Sandy Vista. What are your first thoughts? Um, well, I guess I thought it made me think, all right, it's Tatooine. Okay. And, uh... So take us through it. Uh, there, the Stormtrooper guy pops up. What are you thinking? Well, here's my thought. Now, we may, you know, could he maybe not be a real Stormtrooper? Maybe it's kind of like a callback to oh, episode yeah. four when 
uh, Luke and Han put on their, uh, star, you know, they get the stormtroopers and put on their suits. Okay. Um, so I guess there's that. Um, but how did you feel about it as it went on? Did you start to feel like, ah, uh, this is not looking kind of... The trailer's okay. The thing is, I think that the... J.J. Abrams knows what he's doing. He's wetting the appetites of fanboys yes. everywhere. You're, you're That's right about that. That's basically the word to use for that, is wetting the appetite. Because he's not... I don't know what the story is looking at that. I have right. no idea. And that's that, that's common with a lot of teaser trailers. I kind of like a teaser trailer that can give maybe the hint of a premise. Yes. This didn't give any premise. This basically showed, you know, cool-looking images. It's like, ooh, there's a soccer robot. Ooh, <laughs> there's, there's a ship flying. Yeah. Ooh, there's a lightsaber, which, you know, that's going to get, like, lots and lots of articles and people talking. And actually, let me ask you. Okay. What did you think of that lightsaber? Uh, this is where I've gotten, where I've seen most of the criticism. I, I, I freak, uh, there are certain sites I frequent where the thing that's sticking out to people that's causing the most uproar is that lightsaber. And <laughs> well, I think that the thing that people ask about it is, is it practical? Like, yeah, that's, that's that, the big question. Can you use that lightsaber and would it, uh, you know, but work? Well, I had my whole, uh, whole idea about this. Okay. Uh, and I, I thought about it myself. It's got you... this... Sorry, go ahead. What were you about to say? No, I don't know if you've seen... Uh, somebody did a Photoshop where, because of the way the lightsaber looks, it almost looks a little bit like a cross. Yes. In the back of like the picture, uh, in the shot, you see the, the guy with the lightsaber in the foreground. In the background, you see Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Holding a giant like, now that's cross a twist. on fire. Yeah. It... <laughs> but here's, but here's what, what I had. A cross... You have the regular lightsaber, and you have these two cross pieces coming off the side. Now, the cross guard of a sword is meant to protect the hands of the person who's holding the sword. Yeah. Now, I mean, so te theoretically, if a lightsaber slipped down, uh -huh. I mean, you wouldn't be able to stop it with a piece of metal. I mean, the only thing that makes sense is to have another lightsaber beam down there. Right. Then again, like no one's going to get injured or accidentally injure themselves in a, on a lightsaber in a Star Wars film because it's a movie, and that would be lame. Yeah, especially if you're the one operating the lightsaber, then clearly you know how to use it. You know, I don't need well, to tell I mean, you how to you use it. You could be an idiot. Well, sure. Right. Uh, <laughs> you could be a dumb but young I, man. Whether you like it or not, is ba it's, it's basically nitpicking at this point. Yeah, because I mean, all we have to go on is a teaser. Yeah, all we have to go on are a collection of images. And again, you know, obviously I got goosebumps seeing the Millennium Falcon. So did I. I did. It's hard not... Uh, I th like, and that's the thing. I thought I wouldn't be excited that because made me very you know after the whole uh, you know after three prequels and after all the hype around this one and how we we never even thought there was going to be a, I was going to be like all right measured response let's be objective here and my excitement slowly built throughout the trailer this is what I'm talking about with reaction uh, you know the stormtroopers that I saw looked cool and there was someone flying on kind of like a speeder bike and I was like oh that's something and then Millennium Falcon pop pops up and the Star Wars theme starts playing and I'm like ah! and so I, <laughs> despite myself you I got like excited you were on the Falcon yes I I fell for it yeah but I, but I got excited it was a good teaser I think yeah, when, whether course. you like uh, <clears throat> and whether you like the weird lightsaber or not is up to you but yeah. by the time the movie comes out it's not even going to matter yeah I think that uh I, I remember reading about people making a big deal like, oh, we have to go all the way to this movie theater to see the trailer on the big screen. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, why don't you just watch it on your computer? What's really, 
are you going to get that much more out of seeing literally a minute of footage? Yeah, you're right. Know. Although I do, like I said, I still remember... Again, People like, complain. Well, I mean, the That's... Phantom Menace hype was huge when that came out. I, I still remember it being a big deal, you know, that the, that the, the trailer played before a couple of particular movies. One was A Bug's Life. And that really? Was the teaser, and then the full trailer played before this really forgettable movie called Wing Commander. Wing Commander. Nobody remembers this movie. That sounds like a... it's an adaptation of a video game. Oh nobody played. no! <laughs> it had Freddie Prinze Jr. and Matthew Lillard, and um, oh. I here's my the thing is this was actually back when I would go see movies just because you know because they were playing there. I yeah. know and. I forget if I knew that the pre that the prequel movie trailer was playing before this movie, but I got to see it. And I think other people were going into the theater to see it, but I stuck around in the theater. And this guy that was working the movie theater actually came down and sat next to me, and was like, "What's up?" I'm like, "Hi." It's like, "Are you actually staying to watch the movie?" And I was like, <laughs> "Yeah." And he got up and left. <laughs> Goodbye, strange person. I'll never forget you. Exactly, exactly. But again, Star Wars trailer looks cool. I think J.J. Abrams, you know, knows how to hit those geek buttons and you know get people. I, I've seen so many theories just about like one shot. Yeah, and it's like I mean, it's all we have to go on. Yeah, I, and it's still you know people forget it's another year until this movie comes out. Yeah, you know. So, like I said, I think it's all more about like throwing people a bone and. You know, yeah, and, probably right. Yeah. Um, I mean, but even the but all this backlash, not backlash. Uh, all this, uh, all this reaction to just one trailer is basically the fact that everybody's still excited about Star Wars. Yeah, I think they are. I think they're excited about the fact that, I mean, for one thing, they're bringing back you know three of the main characters and the actors right. playing them. Uh, you know, you see a lot of the same, uh, you know, big ships and. Uh, and maybe this time they'll probably advance the universe a little bit more, uh, as opposed to the prequels where everything was still kind of insulated into what the original trilogy did. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can talk, we about, talk about what's wrong with the prequels. Time. We could that could <laughs> yes. be a whole other podcast, and of course that there could are be other, an entire there are other series. There reviewers out there that have yeah. done much more, uh, you know, epic service to that. Yeah. But I'm so. excited. Yeah. That's all I can say about it. I think it looks okay. I think it looks fine. I'm not, like, over the moon by it, but it looks better than it has any right to be. That's no moon, Jack. It's a space station. Jack! Alright, that was actually not a bad joke. <laughs> okay. Um, let's get into our main... Uh, let's get into our main topic today. Uh, because this is our first uh, podcast... I thought it might be fitting, and Andrew also agreed, that we start off by just telling you about uh, a few of our favorite movies of all time. And uh, we each. Not self indulgent with... at all. No, not at all self indulgent. <laughs> We're not wetting our own beaks and being like, oh, our tastes are awesome, blah, blah, blah. Even though they are, this is not the point. Yeah, the point is, is that uh, once again, we could talk about, you know, some, you know, really wonderful movies that. For the most part, we've both seen. We each actually yes. have one movie uh, on our list that the other hasn't seen, so that will be criminally unseen. Criminally. Well, I would also point the finger at you, but not if I point mine first. 
Uh, and Andrew's now pointing lots of fingers. At them. Um, so, uh, basically, that's what we're going to talk about. And how about we start off, uh, we'll go back and forth, but how about, Andrew, you could start off, maybe you could talk us a little bit about a movie, and, and we'll go on from there. All right, this is in no particular order, but probably... Should we actually, should we tell them our whole list, or just go one by one? We'll just go one by one. That sounds better. Yeah. Uh... I would say, uh, first of all, I have to say my favorite comedy of all time, probably the best comedy of all time, is Duck Soup. Marx That's Brothers. It's yes. up there for sure. And uh, I don't even know what to say about it right now because there's just so much. It's so dense. Groucho Marx has a one-liner every five seconds. And it's... Here are the plans of war. They're as valuable as your life. And that's putting them pretty cheap. Watch them like a cat watches her kittens. Have you ever had kittens? No, of course not. You're too busy running around playing bridge. Can't you see what I'm trying to tell you? I love you. Why don't you marry me? Why, marry you? You take me and I'll take a vacation. I'll need a vacation if we're going to get married. Married. I can see you right now in the kitchen, bending over a hot stove. But I can't see the stove. Well, I can... well let's start with, with a synopsis. Uh, the, 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 the land of... Yes. The, the, like, the movie isn't exactly deep on plot no it's not it's the country of fredonia is running out of money and resources so finally they decide to put this one guy in charge his name is rufus t firefly played uh, by groucho marx yep. and i don't know why they decided he would be the best person involved <laughs> to do this he's, but we're really glad he did because groucho marx is running a country and he just goes crazy with it and nobody seems to question why but still it's tons of fun as he tries to thwart the country of Sylvania from taking over Fredonia. Well, it's not just him. Then you also get the other Marx Brothers. You get Chief Chico and Harpo. Yeah. Kind of like his second-in-command. And I think... Well, they, they, they're they spies who are trying yeah, to get, dig spies. up some dirt on him. Oh, that that's right. That, my, my mistake. They're right. The ambassador from Sylvania has hired Chico and Harpo. Who me here's, here's the thing about Marx Brothers movies that... I don't know if anybody ever questions this, but... None of the Marx Brothers are particularly qualified in what they're chosen to do. <laughs> Groucho Marx becomes the leader of a country. In, a, in Night at the Opera, he's the business manager of some rich lady. And, right. Uh, and also, he's a doctor in in uh, Horse yeah. Feathers. And <laughs> they're all just conning their way through life. Uh, so, presumably, they've conned their way into their positions right now. Chico and Harpo are playing these two spies. And... Uh, they're all just doing insane things. They're 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 basically uh, they're 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 all these set pieces as well, like uh, the mirror scene. The well, the mirror scene is one of the more famous ones. That's it's interesting that a movie with so much talking. That's the one that like a lot of people remember, where there's absolutely there's almost no dialogue. And right. Yet, and it's funny that like thinking about you know we were just talking about Charlie Chaplin and kind of like the silent film, and then not being able to transition to talking. You could kind of look at this as being maybe the first real great it's the talky tr- comedy. It's, it's the talk- triumph of talking over images. Yes, the triumph of talking over images where, you know, like the Marx Brothers basically br- were able to bring over their act, which was on vaudeville in theater originally, yes. and bring that into um, into movies. Yeah, very successfully. Very successfully. In terms of quality and in terms of I mean, of there are just money. things about this movie. I, I got to, I saw it earlier this year again, and... Just so many quotable lines. Uh, anytime that uh, Harpo uh, cuts off somebody's tie, yes. it's great. Um, he, uh, 
he and the he and Chico get into great things when they're talking with a guy about like like I think they were following uh, Rufus at one point. Yes. And Chico's like, first we follow him, he no home. Then we <laughs> we try to follow him the next day, he no home. Then we go to the ball game, and then <laughs> yes, I'm probably misquoting that, but you get the idea. And like, also one of the nice things too is that they're kind of. This one isn't particularly a musical, but there are musical numbers. It's not a musical, but there are musical numbers. Yeah, when they sing about going to war, that's incredibly epic. And then by the end of the movie, when they're actually in the war, it's like... They they throw everything at the movie. They throw in the kitchen sink, they throw in farm animals, they throw in anything... All the stock footage they have. All the the stock footage. (laughs) Uh, Duck Soup is, is great. Your Excellency, you're shooting your own men. Here's five dollars. Keep it under your hat. Never mind. I'll keep it under my hat. <laughs> there are probably twenty better lines I could have chosen to okay. close that one, but yeah. uh, let's go on to your number five. Okay. Um, my number five uh, for now um, is uh, *Inglorious Bastards*. Ah, oh, yes. Uh, this is the 2009 Quentin Tarantino movie. Sergeant Donnie Donowitz. You heard Aldo the Apache, you got heard about the bear Jew. I heard of the bear Jew. What'd you hear? Beats German soldiers with a club. He bashes the brains in with a baseball bat, what he does. And Werner, I'm gonna ask you one last goddamn time. If you still respectfully refuse, I'm calling the bear Jew over. He's gonna take that big bat of his, and he's gonna beat your ass to death with it. so they can finger and point out on this map what I want to know. Fuck you. And your Jew dogs! <laughs> Actually, we're all tickled to hear you say that. Quite frankly, watching Donnie beat Nazis to death is the closest we ever get to going to the movies. It's one of those just incredible combinations of being a war movie but also being like about movies themselves about like how we perform in front of people and try to put on these acts you know and try to keep that up every step of the way in a way it's much more about the act of watching somebody and trying to put on a show than it even is about like what you would usually see in a war movie so let's start out with with the premise basically in this movie um, well, there are kind of multiple things going on, but in general, you could say that the movie's about this group led by Brad Pitt called the Bastards, and it's this group of uh, Jewish American soldiers who have been tasked to uh, kill Nazis. Yes. Like, they're not tasked to take over cities. They're not They're not to, blowing up the guns. They're not blowing up the guns. They're not they, assassinating one person, although later on we'll talk about that. Yeah, but uh, they, they they're there to... They're, they're, they're there to kill Nazis, and Brad Pitt's method involves scalping. Yes. Um, you know, and the famous line in the very first trailer is, uh, you know, each and every one under my command owes me a hundred Nazi scalps. And I want my scalps. Thank you. Um... Yes. And so while that's going on, though, you also have this character played by Christoph Waltz named Hans Landa, yes. Jew hunter, and he's kind of going around the country uh, 
or, Hunting or Jews. Europe, I should say. No, not the country. <laughs> the country of Europe. <laughs> it's okay. This is only going out in America. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, the movie actually... The thing, interesting thing in this movie is that it doesn't open up with the bastards. No. The very first scene in the movie is a 20-minute scene, almost like a short play. Or actually, the movie, in a way, is a lot like a kind of a series of short, like, theatrical segments. It's a lot of segments. It's a lot, it reminds me a lot of a spaghetti western in structure. Yeah. Where you ha- where you're in you're not going there is an overall goal but it, you move from situation to situation that's right uh, and it's very and each situation is very much self-contained it's very much self-contained and which we're so, going to talk about in another movie I have to talk about yeah but in the movie like the movie opens up with Christoph Waltz basically interrogating this uh, farmer and uh, see asking on, if he's if he's hiding any Jews. Yeah, and you're on the edge of your seat the entire time. Oh yeah, I remember that, seeing this, and yeah. I remember the climax of that scene, uh, where I uh, I gripped my seat, and I wanted to shout <laughs> no. You didn't. Uh, I wanted to. It would have been rude in the theater. Uh, exactly. So, but still, it's and a, that's how they a fantastic the movie. scene. Yeah, it's one of the best scenes just basically ever because you basically get introduced also to this real force of an actor Christoph Waltz who before this movie was just in German TV and you know obscure German movies nobody outside of Germany had ever heard of him yeah first and, I'd ever heard of and him. he exploded you know on the scene with one movie it's rare for that to happen but you have a kind of a combination of somebody who has immense talent a director who's really firing on all cylinders and a character that is this intense presence and so basically the movie like i said it has these two things set up and ultimately the main plot involves um a movie theater in france right where um they're gonna screen this propaganda movie about this guy who killed like all these people as a sharpshooter and it involves a woman who escaped from the first scene in the movie who's now working at the theater and right, then, there, there are these two parallel stories. Yeah, you have the bastards, and you have this this uh, young woman who's escaped Christoph Waltz. Yeah, and ultimately all of this is going to, you know, collide basically. By yeah, the at the movie, movie. Th- at the movie premiere where Hitler is attending, and I love this uh, film from the view of a history teacher. Well, yeah, I mean the whole concept is that we're not going to even pretend to try and appease history in the sense of like um in a way i think tarantino talked about how the movie really is meant to function more like like almost like a propaganda movie like the way that they portray hitler is almost more like how movies in the 40s were showing hitler as like a buffoon and as like this over-the-top character Mm -hmm. i mean the actor who plays hitler is still playing him for real but everything around him becomes much more like a comic book you know, like a fantasy, it's, you know, like a movie. Yeah. And by the end of the movie, without spoiling too much, if, if you haven't seen it yet, um, it's, it's pretty violent as, you know, Tarantino and violence, you know, what, what else do you expect? But right. it's, everything is orchestrated so flawlessly. Everything is or- orchestrated to reach these heights of intensity. But what's great about it is that you're not watching action in the usual sense, like action is all about how the characters are interacting, how the stakes keep kind of climbing and climbing as these soldiers have to, you know, pretend who they are or 
they, they really have to improvise this mission after a while because the the yeah, plan it, it does not go according to plan. No, and it becomes and very funny. In that it becomes too. very funny, but also very nerve wracking. Uh, and yet, you could take a lot of the movie seriously too. Like there's certain yes. things, just in terms of the characters, um, like the woman who runs the movie theater, and you know she's had a whole mess of things to deal yeah. with. And so, just scene after scene, it's uh, like the only the one thing that I could mark against is like you could say it's just a collection of great scenes, but I think yeah. there's still the the main thread through it, which is it's World War Two, it's Hitler, and you know the ultimate mission is you know not just killing Nazis, but also you know how do you end the war? Yes. And this movie shows of very definitively how you end the war. Yes. Yes. But that's a that's a pretty good assessment. Yeah. Uh, now, um, now I don't know what your number, what your next one is, but uh, well, I think I'll because, go. Yeah. Um, maybe because we brought up spaghetti westerns, we could talk about. Sure. Uh, movie. This one is uh, one of my favorite movies ever since I saw it. Uh, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. It's it's one of my favorites too. It just didn't mark the top five list. Right. Uh, and the reason I love this movie. Is kind of what I was talking about with *Inglorious Bastards*. There are it's it's a film of moments, where right. I think Roger Ebert said that you could walk out of the theater and then come back and you'd be in a kind of a different sort of short movie where the situation would be different and right. all you need to know are the present conditions. But I think but it's much more than that. It's got a very strong thread running. There to still it. is, of course. I mean, you have these three characters who are introduced. You know, in in you know, in a great way. I mean, the introduction to the movie almost takes up like thirty minutes or something because you're introducing the ugly, the bad, and the good. Right. And and what the movie is about is about these three, uh, these well, three men in in the in Civil War they, they era. Are, they are men shaped. Yes. Uh, <laughs> three gunfighters in in the old West, uh, basically during the Civil War. And they're all on the lookout for this chest of twenty thousand dollars worth of gold. Oh, it's more than that. It's two hundred thousand. Really? Yeah. Well, it's, it's still 000. either way. It's still a lot of money back in the Civil War. Uh, and they're they they're all on the hunt for this gold. And it's introduced very early uh, with the character Angel Eyes. He he gets introduced very dramatically. He's the bad. Uh, he's searching for this chest of gold. And then eventually two other characters, uh, yeah, Clint Eastwood, Clint and Eli Eastwood who is, who's Blondie, and Eli Wallach, who plays Tuco, mm -hmm. uh, they all get caught in, t in, this, uh, in this search. And eventually they all come together at the end uh, and have one of the most glorious three-way duels in the history of cinema. Yeah, this is basically... Never has men looking at each other out of the side of their eyes been more dramatic. Never has a director <laughs> basically indulged so much in churning up a level of suspense to, you know, it's almost like absurdist or surrealistic type of level where, you know, there's no reason why it should take this long for them to, sh to, to finally draw their well, guns. Well, th there is a reason. Well, uh, there is a reason, but the, to the extent that it's taking this long, like... Oh, oh yeah, they take their sweet time. Yeah, it's orchestrated <laughs> like an opera. I mean, the way that this whole thing is, I mean, Tuco first arrives at a cemetery... That's its own set piece. Yes. The Ecstasy of Gold. And that's another big reason to love this movie, the soundtrack by Ennio Morricone. It is... It's uh, worth listening to by itself, and when you put it to all these images, it's just uh, stupefying. Well, this was actually... Um, I don't know how often, if this was done at all much before this movie, but this 
this started uh, a trend for Leone and Morricone, which they followed for the rest of their for the uh, for the rest of Leone's films, where he would actually have Morricone score uh, the movie before he was even shooting it, and then he would play the soundtrack on set huh. to actually try to orchestrate the filming of the movie to that like degree, so that. Like when he's running through the uh, through the cemetery, he's doing it in part to Morricone's music. That's funny because my brother loves this movie, and when he went jogging, he would listen to this song on his iPod, mm. "The Ecstasy of Gold," and that's how <laughs> that's how he would run for about three minutes. And uh, it's it's it, actually it's, used to open up uh, uh, Metallica concerts. Yes, according oh. to Wikipedia. <laughs> well, no, from what I've. I've seen a concert movie, and I'm not just saying that because I'm wearing a Metallica shirt right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's just a coincidence. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the performance is also... I mean, it'd be one thing if it was just kind of like an exercise in style, but Eli Wallach, I think, is, like, tremendous. In this. He He's really, like... He's a fully rounded character, too, because you can hate him a lot of times, and he's kind of... You know, he's not a good person at no. all. But... <laughs> He's kind of likable just in how much of like a son of a bitch he is. Yeah, and he's such like a over the top guy and uh, you know kind of like a comical person, and yet yeah, you believe he's him kind of, as he, a badass. He's kind of crude, but he's also very clever. And then you also have that scene between him and his brother, who's a priest. Uh, yeah, I don't know if you remember that. Scene, I remember that. Where that to me is almost one of the very best scenes of that movie because all of a sudden this guy who you think is just this you know bandito and this kind of yeah, criminal he, he actually has a past he has this whole history he has you know he has a reason for why he is abandoned exactly and that seems important because it helps us to realize that Eli Wallach is the character we're supposed to identify Tuco is the character we're supposed to identify with Clint Eastwood is famous he, for this movie and you know anytime you see a DVD cover he's going to be on the cover but Tuco is basically the main he's character the yeah, he's the, he's anything we know, anything he knows we know, yeah. and and Blondie played by Clint Eastwood, he knows things we don't know. We can't identify with and him. Lee and Lee Van Cleef is just evil. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he rips off and beats uh, Union prisoners, of, uh, no Confederate prisoners of war, which will make you feel sorry for the South. <laughs> I didn't know it was possible. I, I was but... going to say, as a history of as a person of history, you uh, probably find this movie interesting too well it's not it is it's actually kind of ironic because there are so <laughs> many historical inaccuracies in it well yeah but i mean you almost don't care i mean this i don't care i don't Italian's vision of america yeah but I don't, I don't even care about that like you can't care about historical accuracy in films a lot sure. of it, unless you, you go insane but yeah um it's not so much for his uh, even historically speaking, it's in a very obscure part of America during the Civil War. Yeah. And you realize it's just a backdrop. It's all about these three men. And at the end of the film, you're in this cemetery, and then suddenly you'll stop and think to yourself, man, wasn't there a scene at the beginning where there was a farmer who got <laughs> shot? Or, like, a guy with a yeah. pillow, or someone was being hung or something? And it feels like such a long time ago, yeah. but in but in a good way. It puts, it's, a, it's a really long movie that you don't mind watching all the way through. It, puts, it, it, it marries the Western into the Odyssey. Maybe that could be a way of putting it. I mean, it's not quite the Odyssey as we know it. But it is an odyssey in its way. It is an odyssey. It is not yeah. the odyssey. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> so, that but is... it's 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 
epic isn't the right word, but it's this incredible adventure. No, I want. I, I want to say it's a very. It's an incredible adventure film. Okay. With lots of gunplay, and lots of great music. Yes. And remember, when you have to shoot, shoot. Don't talk. Yes. <laughs> Jack, what is your number so, four? Um, I'd like to go on. Uh, speaking of uh, war, I'd like to bring up uh, uh, the movie Apocalypse Now. And All right. Of course, uh, you know this is. Uh, Speaking of Odysseys, this one actually takes a little bit closer to the Odyssey in a way, but also Joseph Conrad's Hearts of Darkness. Right. Um, basically, it's about a riverboat uh, that goes up. Through it's not the... about the boat. No, no, it's not about. You're the thinking boat. of Titanic. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, their hearts will go on. Marlon Brando's heart in the horror of Vietnam will go on and on. The Titanic sake, Rose washes up on shore <laughs> and she's in Vietnam. <laughs> That that we just came up with a movie. Write that down. I will. Titanic um, two. The the rose water the rose Vietnam ears. We'll work on the subject. Yeah, anyway. anyway, so this uh, this captain played by Martin Sheen is tasked with uh, uh, going to find this guy uh, named Kurtz, um, who's also you know from Hearts of Darkness, but in this case it's set in Vietnam. He's this colonel out in the jungle who. Um, basically has gone insane, uh, and now... Terminate uh, with extreme prejudice. Yeah, Willard has to terminate with extreme prejudice. He's basically tasked by the military in the secret operation to kill Kurtz. And so he gets onto this riverboat, uh, and he's taken upriver, basically, to, uh, you know, find this guy, and he has to take him out. Um, as with a lot of movies, I mean, it's not about the destination, it's the journey. Right. Um... So this movie basically has, you know, one of the great journeys ever, you yes. know, punctuated by, uh, you know, kind of what the notorious uh, uh, Ride of the Valkyries uh, approach yes. to the beach where they're playing the music and everybody's running. And, you know, just like with, uh, as we mentioned with Leones, uh, Francis Ford Coppola is basically orchestrating this grand uh destruction on this little village it's one of those great scenes that's inseparable from its music yeah you can't really that's become iconic that. it's become totally iconic almost you know to the point of parody um yes and uh if you're being parodied then you've pretty much hit hit the jackpot yeah if you have everybody if you have teachers or i don't know if teachers but I, that's not the word i was looking for but if you have just common and saying i love the smell of blank in the morning you're yes. looking at apocalypse now um this movie is you know, like with a lot of my favorite movies, it's not just one thing. It's a whole lot of things. It's it's a war movie, but it's really more about uh, searching the psychology of war, um, almost like kind of like mysticism or something. Yes. Uh, through because Marlon Brando's character Colonel Kurtz, he has. I mean, if you know anything about Vietnam, you know it wasn't a good time. No. Uh, and ultimately, he faces this not only this moral question, but this idea of what am I doing here? What, what am I what are, really what any, doing yeah, here? Yeah, what am I? What are any of us doing in this situation? And instead of backing down from what he sees as a, an unwinnable situation, he goes over the edge into put into areas you you never thought were possible yeah. for human beings. And then that and then that same danger kind of faces uh, Willard as well, the Martin Sheen character. Right. You know, could he wind up like Kurtz? Possibly. Maybe that could be a question. Like, can he really take this mission? Um, He's kind of is like, he morally justified in doing what he's doing? Exactly. No matter how corrupt Colonel Kurtz is. Yeah. And, and uh, is Colonel Kurtz wrong? Mm -hmm. I mean, in times of war, everybody bends their own morality. And 
you could say Colonel Kurtz has bent it to the breaking point, but exactly is what he do, is what he's doing any any uh, less moral than what uh, anybody else was doing at the time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have to like that. That's kind of the main question. It's like he even Kurtz even poses it. You know, you know, you don't have a, you don't have a right to judge me. I mean, you have a right to kill me, but you don't really have a right to judge me, do you? Yeah. Um, that's basically <laughs> what he says to him. Uh, Let's take it easy. Up. Take it easy. Slow down and take it easy. Uh, Calm right, down. Just wait a minute. Wait a minute, huh? Chef. Bring her up to me. She's breathing, Chef. She's hurt. Oh, She's man. bleeding. Bring her on board. We're taking her to an Arvin. Look at it. What are you talking about? We're taking her to some friendlies, Captain. She's wounded. She's not dead. The book says, Captain. Ah! told you not to stop now let's go yeah um i know actually there are some people who uh have a problem with the whole last section with mom brando they think that's really like murky and it doesn't quite work like his performance i think he's great I yeah think he po- he serves that function to such a really horrifying extent like you just see how much pain this guy is in and you know it's not such an easy thing that um that he, you know, he's a terrible guy who must be taken out. He's kind of like this force of nature who you kind of have to contend with, who's completely in the shadows. And he has uh, reasons for doing what he's done. He, has, he, he he delivers this particularly devastating monologue about how he about this village. Um, yeah. We won't spoil it for you, but what happens it's is horrifying. Been out Thirty-five years. Well, <laughs> no, for those that haven't <laughs> seen it, to put it, yeah, he gives a speech about why about this horrifying situation that this really eye opening him. yeah this eye opening uh occurrence about what that you would have to actually do to really succeed at war which is what ended up being why the vietnamese won because they were able to go that extra step that americans you know tried to do but they weren't quite up to that task right and that's that's how he's looking at it whether you agree with anything about vietnam is no it's uh, it, I mean, that's up to you but sir, but colonel kurtz movies. is yeah he's a character who has this reason for doing it. and exactly. that's that's something i've noticed about movies lately that the best villains have reasons for what they do yeah like any villain could just kill a henchman out of hand you like or, to see their code yes they're a code is important but not but it's also having a rationale right like i think i noticed this in firefly mm-hmm. not firefly uh serenity serenity right. the the main the villain in that he does some bad things, but he also doesn't do a lot of stuff. But what he does do that's horrible, he does for a reason. Yeah. And that's the mark of any good villain. And Colonel Kurtz, whether you agree with him or not, is certainly a villain. No. And he has a code. Mm-hmm. And he has a rationale. And, and everything else around the movie, too. Like, the characters on the boat, I, I think, are really Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne. Or as he was called, Larry Fishburne. Yes. Before he, he, Cowboy Curtis. He grew into Lawrence and Cowboy Curtis. Yeah, before <laughs> Cowboy Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> I, that just threw me off. I'm like, what the hell is Cowboy Curtis? And I'm like, oh yeah, Pee-wee. Uh, Thanks for reminding me of that. No problem. <laughs> but all those performances are are really wonderful. Too. Yeah, Martin uh, Sheen. Well, Martin Sheen, Frederick Forrest. Uh, Tarrison Ford is in it in that begin in the beginning for one scene. Yeah, that was like I think that was right before he did Star Wars. Right. Because like, Apocalypse Now's history is also really fascinating. Like. The fact that it actually took years to shoot and edit, yes. and um, 
you know, it was kind of like before Werner Herzog, it was really like the first real terror the in the The first jungle. real jungle film. Yeah, the first real jungle film. And if you ever watch the documentary Hearts of Darkness, uh, that's I have yet to see that. That seems like... I'll lend it to you. And it inspired Tropic Thunder. There you go. Which, uh, <laughs> which is fantastic. That's not on our list, but that's a funny movie. Yes, it is. All right, so why don't we go on to the next movie? Okay, my number three is The Adventures of Robin Hood, the one you have not seen. No, I, I, sorry, dear listeners, I have not seen this movie. I've seen, I, I think I've seen little bits, and I have seen the movie that parodied the movie. Robin Hood, what, Men in Tights. Robin Hood, Men in Tights. Or it, it parodied that along with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. <laughs> now, I imagine Adventures of Robin Hood is better than Prince of Thieves. Yes, Adventures of Robin Hood is the story <laughs> of uh, no, the Saxon nobleman Robin, uh, Robin O'Loxley, who opposes Prince John, who is trying to take over the Kingdom of England while his brother Richard is imprisoned. And it's Robin Hood. He shoots a bow and arrow. He sword fights. He does everything awesome. Swings from vines. Uh, wins an archery competition and wins the heart of made, uh, of uh, whoever it is played made, by Olivia de Havilland. Marian? That's not what she's called in this movie, though. Oh, is, oh she's Marion. All right, because you know what the problem is. I am going by the Disney Robin Hood. Which oh is man, what I've seen I've seen that one many yes. times. Well, that was one I, of my favorites when I was a little kid. Okay, but uh, now what is it about this movie that is in your favorites? Well, it's first of all, it's very old Hollywood. It's this very clean, uh, very clear-cut plot, and it's the and it's a very uh, a, pl- a plot of uh, how was I how am I to say it? he it's you can kind of go from point A to B to C. It's very clear, um, but it's also very entertaining. Yes, it's very entertaining. Uh, I think it was directed by Michael Curtiz too, and he was he did Casablanca, old, right? Yeah, Casablanca. Uh, Mildred Pierce, uh, all all sorts of movies. Actually, I think he did Captain Blood. Well, that's the same idea. I mean, and that's the same cast of characters: uh, Basil Rathbone, uh, Errol Flynn, and Olivia De Havilland, yeah. who are all in Robin in the Adventures of Robin Hood. Okay. And the way I, the reason I say it's very old Hollywood is because everything, every character is very clear cut. You admire Robin Hood. Uh, because he right. is everything that you want to be. He's yeah. he's courageous. He's generous. He's he's kind to people. He sticks up for justice. Uh, uh, and at the risk of everything he owns. And you want to be someone like that, or you want to know somebody like that. You want to sure. you want to follow him. And Basil Rathbone is the villain, of course. Uh, and he is, and he, again, he's a villain who has a reason for doing what he what he does. Sure. He, I mean, he doesn't see it as wrong. He thinks it's right to to exploit all these people well, yeah. because that's his position. Uh, and as, that, and of course, the way it is. yes. And there's Claude Rains who plays Prince John. Ah. Wow. So I, it just now does Claude Rains have a big role? Oh yeah, because Prince John is. Uh... Yeah, he's the main villain. Yeah, yeah. Basil yeah. Rathbone is like his lieutenant. Uh, the sheriff. No, not the sheriff. He's uh, Guy of Gizmond. Okay. Uh, he's he wasn't in the Disney version. Jack. Sorry, I'm going by <laughs> I'm going by the version where uh, Peter Ustinov was Prince John, and he was a lion. Yes, <laughs> I, I I know that movie's not particularly like a Disney classic. No, it's, it is, it is but it's not. a guilty pleasure. I yeah. can still watch that movie and laugh my ass off. If you if you loved uh, Robin Hood the Disney version, you'll probably love this for the same reasons. Well, I'm sure I would I would be, find it entertaining just because I've seen Men in Tights many yes. times and Carrie Elway's. I think was meant to be cast as like an Errol Flynn 
type. Yes, maybe certainly. Um, but yeah, so that's one of your favorites. It's like a, kind of your golden Hollywood classic type adventure movie. Yeah, and here's the thing that I that makes it very personally. Uh, okay. Is what a, a very personal reason for liking it? It's very much in has the spirit of boyhood about it. Oh. And what I mean is. Okay. When you're when you're a boy, you have this. When oh, you're I young, you meant the movie boyhood. No, not okay. not the, the no. Uh, Sorry. It's it's like it's sort of like you pictured the world when you were young. That there were that the best people were the ones who were fair sure. to you, uh, like like Robin is. Like he gets beat by other people in sword fights, or like he fights Little John with a staff and he gets knocked off. And uh, and later on he says, "Oh, I, I'm sorry, I beat you. I didn't know you were Robin Hood." He's like, "Ah, <laughs> I I love I love it when I I love people who can best me." Sure. And it's it's about be he's just very gracious. I love the character of Robin Hood. He's gracious in defeat, and he, but he's still proud of what he can do. He's the best man with a bow, but sure. he's always gathering around these other people who are who are good at, at things, probably better than he is. Yeah. But he, they all have a common idea of justice. So it's very, so there's no moral ambiguity about it whatsoever. So you like it for the opposite reasons of a. Uh... Um, well, I don't know what other movie on your list would be exactly morally <laughs> ambiguous, but... Uh, well, I know about ambiguous ambiguous. We'll get on to that one next. Yeah. But, um, uh, but it's just... Uh, also, it's got just really great sword fights in it. Sure. Well, and here's was, a bit of trivia yeah, that I love. Go, go, going ahead back, and say it. go ahead and say it, because I know what you're going to say. The arrows that were getting shot into the uh, people... Those people are actually getting shot with arrows, but they have padded suits. <laughs> that was actually the, what they did on in uh, the movie Throne of Blood. Yeah, like the they, where they actually shot arrows at. To shoot. But these people are getting hit. They they just have pa- pads underneath. They they got like a bonus that day. Well, they yeah, I mean they didn't really have fake arrows back in uh, in that era of Hollywood, you know. So they had to they had to work with what they had, you know. Yes, and um, they, and they do it effectively. I mean. You see a guy getting shot with an arrow. He is being shot with an arrow. See, the thing I thought you were about to bring up, though, like in terms of trivia, though, that was actually one of the movies that inspired Lucas when he was doing the original Star Wars movies in terms of the sword fights. Like, he looked at Robin Hood and was like, you know, I could try to recreate some of that with, you know, lasers. And uh, (laughs) I didn't know he had looked at that one specifically. One of those. I mean, that Yeah. Flash Gordon. Yeah. Well, it, it fits under... It fits under uh, uh, that general adventure thing that he was. He yeah, was interested I, I could in. see the original Robin Hood being one of those like Saturday matinee type of movies. Yes, so, and and it's just one. and it's a very colorful movie, and the sword fight at the end between Errol Flynn and Basil Rathbone is absolutely memorable. Right. It'll like, compared to something nowadays where you see a sword fight. There is nothing. There's there's no the other thing too is that back in those days in Hollywood. You know, you actually had a shot last a while. Yes, then this shot lasts a while. Um, yeah, everything's not cut up to, to, to pieces. Shots last longer than five seconds. There we go, and you yes. can actually tell <laughs> what is going on in the shot. Yes. Um, so that's a, that, I'm going to check that out. I'm not going to say anything about Michael Bay. Michael Bay. Okay, right. let's right, go on so, to your next one. All right, my next movie is... Um, uh, it was actually my favorite movie of the past, uh, uh, of the OOs, the, the aughts, whatever they call it. 
Um, <laughs> you, you look all confused right now. I know what you're talking about, but your Thank words you. are just... There's no easy way to say it. You could say the 90s and the 80s, you know what you're talking about. The O's. The O's. From David Lynch, the director of Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet. Could be someone's missing. The girl is missing. I just came here from Deep River, Ontario, and now I'm in this dream place. Okay, my number, my next movie is Mulholland Drive. Oh, the David Lynch film, which it's it's interesting because from start to finish, I've only seen this movie three times. Now I say only (laughs) because. You know, a lot of the movies on my list and a lot of my favorite movies I see over and over and over again, if I can. Right. You know, there might be movies that I only see once or twice just because they might be hard to find or I need to be in a certain mood. Mulholland Drive, I mean, I saw that twice in the theater. The first time I saw it, it affected me in a way that it was like I couldn't quite put it into words, but I knew that I had seen something really artistically moving and powerful. Yeah. Now, the I, second, the, that happens a lot. Uh, I mean, especially when you're younger, that you you see something, you know it's great, but you don't understand. Yeah, why. the second time I thought I understood it a little bit more, and then I just you know I loved it a little bit more in that way, and I knew it was that was my real. I had seen other Lynch movies before, but that was the one where I was like, okay, Lynch is one of my guys. This is someone who I really have to keep an eye out for. Let's go watch Dune. Nothing can go wrong. <laughs> no, no problem with sandworms. Uh-huh. Um. But then it it was a few a little while later that I found I saw it again, and I had a totally different take on it than when I first saw the movie, or like I thought about how the entire the way I thought that the movie was constructed uh, was to, like different than what I had originally thought. Like I had thought that the way that the characters were acting in a certain way was kind of like in its in its reality, and then it was a fantasy sort of thing. Right. But in a way that that flipped for me the third time I saw the movie. and I was The reality was the fantasy and the fantasy was the reality. Exactly. Now, I don't want to say specifically how that works, but... I don't know if you could spoil this movie. The thing is, it's a hard <laughs> way to describe it. Like, Lynch movies like this, and especially Inland Empire, you can't really bottle them up very easily, and you wouldn't want to try it. It's basically... The easiest way to say it about Mulholland Drive, it's a movie about Hollywood. Or yes. about how David Lynch views Hollywood, how... Um, like, these two actresses are basically... Or not actresses. Here. One of them is an actress. Let's, and, <laughs> see how there's a lot to go on, but let's go with the plot from the beginning. The, the We're not going to go through the whole thing. No, no, like, the, what's the, the, the premise? The premise. Thank you. That's a good word to use here. Okay. The premise is that this woman gets uh, is in this car. She gets into a car accident on Mulholland Drive. She staggers away from the car accident and... She's her memories have she been has amnesia. Erased. She has amnesia. She doesn't know where she is. And she um, comes across she comes Naomi across Watts. Naomi Watts, who has come to Hollywood for the first time, and, uh, and she's she all bouncy try- and all she's excited. Chipper, and she's like a girl from the Midwest. You know, right. she's uh, one of those type of actresses who, you know, like as if you would think about how actresses in Golden Age of Hollywood and come to Hollywood and be like, I'm going to be a star. Yes. And, you know, then <laughs> there was realize. something kind of corny about her performance in There's the beginning, but that's perfect. about it, but that's, but that's Lynch's intention. Yes, that's um, intentional. And so basically they get into, like, trying to figure out this mystery of who she is 
And, and it takes them to a whole bunch of creepy places. A whole bunch of creepy places, and this is kind of... Um, there's, a, there's a subplot that kind of figures into this at some point. Or we about some point. about mafia and the director. Well, yeah, there's a director who's like taken off of his movie like control, and uh, and he deals with a lot of unsavory elements, you could say. Yeah. And in a way, like it's interesting. We talked about how good the bad and the ugly and bastards were kind of like a collection of moments that are just great one after another. Yeah. With Mullen Drive, it's a little bit like that. Um, but the more times you see it, you can actually see the logic that Lynch is trying to work through. That you can actually follow what he's doing. And he he just has a way in terms of directing his actors, uh, where how he puts the camera, especially how he uses sound, that is especially creepy. Uh, yes. There's a whole set piece involving a character who describes uh, seeing a, like, a, a creature or some person in, like, the parking lot. Yeah, he talks about a dream that he has. A dream. Where this person just kind of surprises him. And he, and he hopes he never sees that person outside of a dream again. And it's a scene that seems to have nothing to do with the rest of the movie, but when you think about themes and when you see it more often, you begin to realize that it's, it's, it's another illustration of what David Lynch is talking about. No, and that's one of the things that, you know, like I said, when I first saw the movie, it's like I didn't know what was going on, but I was... Not only fine with that, it was yeah. like, I want to see where this is going. It I, was a well-constructed scene, and every time you watch it, it's always uh, it's always effective. Yeah, well-constructed scene after well-constructed scene. I mean, you can have a movie that is kind of random in its logic or absurd, but if it follows along, then... Uh, <laughs> I see Andrew's pointing down to his notes, and we're gonna we're gonna talk about that boy. Oh, I mean, if you want to talk about, we're gonna talk about the mother, <laughs> the grandmother of all that. But um, the point is, the Mulholland Drive, it's a really affecting piece of art. It has moments that, like you know, you're laughing your head off, and then you're kind of like in a hushed silence, and then there are even moments where I almost am like, I, I'm not saying I'm, I was brought to tears, but. Like the scene where these uh, these two act these two women are watching this other woman sing this song, yes, uh, in this club, uh, Silencio. El Club Silencio. Yeah, Club Silencio. Like everything about it is just uh, really moving. And then they actually yes. have this kind of moment that happens where, like, the, the, the movie the, flips. Yeah, and the singer like she kind of like falls down but she's still singing yes and uh i've seen I've, a lot of the movie is really also about the artifice of movies of filmmaking itself. yes yeah um about how like what we think that we're seeing is flipped on its head and artifice is created or deconstructed and um in a sense this has basically made a movie about like a better word about the magic of hollywood yes Magic in in quotes, I'd and say. In evil ways. A, a very dark magic of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, like the like Hollywood is run by warlocks. And and <laughs> yes. <laughs> you heard it here. Hollywood is run by war- warlocks. <laughs> I think that was. Uh, I I want to talk about my reaction to Mulholland Drive. Yeah. I I basically, I, my roommate watched it, and you know what I'm talking about, yeah. and. Uh, and I just kind of got it, like, I was listening, and I would look at the TV, and I'd see things going on, and flashing lights, and very weird sounds. And then I watched it with him, and, again, it's not easy to decipher, but no. still, like, as you said, you feel that you've seen something. 
you, that that you, that impacted you. It puts an impact on you, even though you don't understand the plot you quite yet. That's the one of the things that Lynch often talks about. Um, when he talks about like going to a movie. That sometimes you don't really need a, you don't need to have everything spelled out for you. Sometimes what's important is the emotional journey. Like, yes. Sometimes that having that and. You, know, you could bottle up Mulholland Drive and say, oh, it's a neo-noir. It has these elements like a uh, film noir or something, like right. a lot of mystery and a lot of uh, sex and a lot of uh, intrigue. Yes. Uh, but it's also, again, about trying to use the instrument of cinema in performance and light and pacing and getting something out of it. Yes. And I think that is the mark of someone who really knows how to use the medium. Yeah, and I, I love it too because I just like things that are a little ambiguous, I'm which brings that. us to my number two. Thank you. Uh, great segue. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. Not you. We named the monkey Jack. <laughs> my number two is a silent film that I don't know how many people have heard of it. I mean, sometimes you get a lot, sometimes you get almost nobody. Everybody else I've talked to has been like, what the hell are you talking about? But my number two is Unchan Andalou. Yeah. trying to whistle some uh, music from the movie. It's better if you watch it. The movie is only 15 <laughs> minutes long. It's, but it's the first... Uh, it's the first surrealist masterpiece. Perhaps the only surrealist masterpiece. That's, made, that's a bold claim. Well, I'm a bold person. <laughs> It was made by. It was directed by Luis Buñuel in 1929, along and made in collaboration with Salvador in, Dali. Yes, in collaboration with Salvador Dali. If you don't know exactly where his name comes from, just think about limp watches, and you'll get it right away. Think about like giraffes on fire. Yes, and, there uh, are no giraffes on fire in this movie, but no. what you get equally strange things. Uh, the plot, if there is a plot, is there a plot? It's about a man and a woman. I guess you could say that, yeah. I yes. That, I mean, we but, do get yes. we do get two characters, and one is a man and one is a woman. Yes, and about all th- the things they do makes it a little weird. Yes, uh, it has one of the most famous shots in cinema, which is a straight razor slicing through a woman's eyeball. Yes, exactly. And you can apply any meaning to this that you think. Uh, you can see whatever you want with it. It is basically it is surreal with a capital S. The uh, whole the whole idea is that you have a movie where the director and the and the writer they don't pretend to have any answers or any logic to what they're showing you. In fact, they, I think when it was first shown, there was like a, a really violent reaction by the audience in part because they were like, "What what are you showing us? What is this? This yeah. is complete nonsense, madness." chaos. Yeah. But also uh, Buñuel and Dali set out not to have any sort of logic. No. Uh, and that's the essence of surrealism. That there is no logical connection between any of the events in Unchen Andalou. But the point is that you feel that they make sense. Yes. Kind of like Mulholland Drive. Uh, surrealism isn't just weird for the sake of weird. It, surrealism is making connections between yes. unlike things. Yes. In a way that feels right, but you can't explain. No, you can have so, something happening that, you know, um, something like the song, like the Bob Dylan song, like something's happening here, but you don't know what it is. Yes. Like that line kind of applies to sort of surrealism in the sense that 
Um, a, a lot of times, too, like, I know maybe especially for Dali, maybe also as well for Greenwell, it's also about getting a reaction out of something, about provoking the yes. audience in other ways. I mean, a lot of the art that Dali did uh, back in the 20s and 30s, it was meant to be have all these outrageous images in a way that, you know, you're breaking out of the, the normal. You're trying to find new ways of communicating that, you know, sure? at, yeah. first, at first glance you might think, oh, that's weird. But you give it another moment, and again, you might not be able to figure out, but something, you know, you yeah. might have a kind of re- at least a reaction to it. Now, let me give you an example of, of surrealism in Unchen Andalou. The best scene I could describe is there's a man laying on a bed uh, wearing some sort of feminine clothes, mm. and he... All of a sudden, we cut away to two hands shaking a cocktail shaker. And that somehow <laughs> means that the doorbell is ringing. Mm. And why does a cocktail shaker mean that the doorbell <laughs> is ringing? You don't know. But it means that. Yes. Why, the thing to me that... <laughs> it's, like, uh, you have to see it to understand what I'm talking what, about. What I always and think it's about... 15 minutes long, so there's no excuse. You can find it on YouTube... Uh, you don't even have to buy an expensive $40 DVD for 15 mm. minutes of footage. You can go see this film on the internet yeah. with no problem. And once you see it, you will never forget it. Yeah, I. the thing that I always remember, too, when thinking about how, you know, there's a logic, but there isn't logic, like it's just strange, yes. was the, um, there's a scene where, again, we talk about man and woman in the movie, and the man is kind of, like, he's, he's feeling up the woman, and then all of a sudden we see her without her clothes on, he's feeling her naked. And then the woman is, like, running around the room, and he's trying to catch her. And then it cut, and then it cuts to him dragging a piano across the room with, like, a dead deer or a dead... Dead donkey. A dead donkey on top of it. With priests underneath it. Yes. Who are being dragged by ropes. <laughs> One of them is Salvador Dali, by the way. Yes. Um, so when I watch that scene, it's like... I actually have kind of an interpretation of what that could mean. Right. Now, that might not be what you think it means. No. But the fact that I can get some kind of meaning out of it means that it works. That yes. it means that there is something going on that there was thought put into the nonsense, if that makes sense. Yes. It's a, a, lot, a mistake that people make when trying to go for surrealism is basically just putting a bunch of random elements together, and that's not it. Because you do have to put thought into how things go together, even yes. though it means nothing. When you put it together in a way that makes it feel right without it actually ma- yeah. meaning anything, mm-hmm. that that's more or less surrealism. By yeah. the way, speaking of surrealism, I was just thinking about this, that I think the movie Frozen has one of the best surreal cinema moments in modern film. I can explain this to you later. Yeah, maybe. So. I will explain this to you later. But okay, well, uh, let's let's tease the audience and to, for them to think about what it is. You think about the scene. If you are under thirteen, you probably know what I'm talking about. Yes, <laughs> yes, or or you can you know yeah if you're if or if you're a parent, I'm sure you've watched the movie enough times now yes. to know what we're talking about. But that's a uh, discussion yes. for another so, day. Yeah, so let's move on though. Um, Your number two. My number two is, um, see, I could pick, my number one or number two could be interchangeable because they're that close together. Okay. Um, but I'll make my number two today, uh, Fanny and Alexander, which uh, I All know right. is a movie you haven't seen, and granted, I know that it's not the kind of movie that you can easily, you know, see. just take, well, <laughs> not even so much that. The movie is now has been for about ten years out on Criterion. 
Okay. And interesting with this movie is that there are two versions. There is one version, which is actually the one that my, my parents actually had a story where they went to go see the movie. My mom was a really big Ingmar Bergman fan. And my dad was huge, kind of like 20 like, feet tall. <laughs> yes. Yeah, very huge uh, fandom. Um, but uh, <laughs> you can measure the fandom in, in feet. In feet, um, yes. But uh, the thing was, though, my dad wasn't so much. I mean, not that he wasn't going out of his way to see Bergman. It just wasn't on his radar. Right. And so they saw this movie, and there were things about it that kind of made him very, like, disturbed <laughs> in some ways. Um, and that was the night you were conceived. You know, you, you joke about that, but the movie came out in, I think, June of 1983, or around then. Oh, jeez. Which is nine months before I was conceived. <laughs> God, I was just kidding. I'm a Fanny and Alexander baby. Oh, um, man. Um, but no, uh, but the point is is that that version that they saw in theaters was three hours long. That, okay. that was the version... So by the time the movie was over, you were born. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, because what a turn on this movie is. Um, but but, but so let's let's. But, but the longer version is five hours. That's what I'm saying, and that's actually. Have you seen version. both versions? Yeah, I've only seen the theatrical one once, okay. and that one, it's a good, it's good, but it's like even watching it, you feel like there are things missing, and the five hour version is is like the one that I put in my top pantheon. Basically, what to describe this movie. It takes place in the early 20th century uh, in Sweden, in a small town, and involves bork, this... Bork, bork, Does everything come back to Swedish chef for you? Tonight, yes. <laughs> so, early 20th century Sweden. Thank you. It involves this uh, family um, called the Ektels, and they're like this theatrical family. They run a theater, um, and they act in plays and things like that. And... Um, what happens is, I mean, this is basically bottling up the movie in, like, a little bit here. Yes. Um, the the patriarch of the family dies, and uh, the the woman, the, the matriarch, the mother, ha- has to remarry. Otherwise, you know, she has to find a way to live and take care of her kids, uh, because he was kind of really a, a big part of making the theater work. Right. And uh, so she marries this guy who, I guess, has been kind of like this priest. Not this priest. He, the priest can't get married. But he was a, like a, I guess you could say a preacher or a pastor of some kind. He's some sort of clergyman. Yeah, a, cler- a, man, a man of the clergy who can marry and, you know. Have so sex. he's probably Protestant. Yeah, probably a reverend. Um, and that's why I'm blanking. But the point is, like, she gets comfort from this guy after her husband dies, and then they end up marrying. And she's she and her kids are kind of taken away to live with him. And um, basically, life under his his command, or I'd say command, because he's basically kind of like a tyrant. Right. And he like whips, you know, he whips the kids, and uh, is kind of like a brutal man. And uh, and and the boy Alexander, he's in a way, it's called Fanny Alexander, but it's more so about him in a way, because he kind of keeps seeing the ghost of his father kind of showing up. Um, maybe in that sense, it has a slight thing like hamlet maybe. yes um, that's what i was just thinking yeah very yeah i guess now that i think about it it is a bit like hamlet yeah i mean it would make sense with the beginning of the family being a very theatric uh, a theater family well was that in hamlet though i thought that was more like monarchy or no i mean or they're a theater family hamlet, hamlet is a play oh, oh okay i get what you're saying i thought you <laughs> meant the characters in no hamlet. no they're not but no i, I guess 
Yeah, but the point is that's basically the story in a nutshell, and basically how. So who's Fanny? Fanny's the daughter. Okay. Like Fanny and Alexander are the kids, um, and so the movie, in a sense, you know, and a lot of dramas, you know, you just get kind of one of the things that I really appreciate about this movie from even the first time I saw it, but then especially when I got more into this director's cut. Um, a lot of dramas sometimes you get the story of just the adults and you know you know that these char- you know the the adult characters they have kids but they're kind of left by the wayside you don't really care about them they are secondary characters yeah but in this movie they're primary characters along with the adults and so alexander is kind of like the hero of the story while this you know reverend stepfather is kind of like the villain um what's nice though is that the vi- like this guy is not He's again. We talk about villains, and they have certain reasons for doing what they're doing. The guy who this reverend thinks his name is Vergus. He very villainous name. <laughs> yes, he, Darth Vergus. I, I was gonna say that he has kind of like a right up there with the best villains ever type of thing, <laughs> like Palpatine or something. But <laughs> but he does have a code in the sense that he thinks that the way that he's treating his these kids putting them in this very strict upbringing, making them basically stay most of the time in this very cold house um, is the way to go. But, of course, these kids haven't been brought up that way. They, you know, they see this as almost like a prison because they've come from, again, this very theatrical family. Um, And the way that the movie starts really establishes this wonderfully because, um, in a sense, this might actually be, in part, my favorite Christmas movie. Because huh. the first hour of the movie, at least talking about this longer version, it takes place on Christmas. And you're basically following this family, celebrating Christmas, and, you know, the kids all have sorts of fun. You see them kind of like how they celebrate Christmas in Sweden, I guess. They would run around the house in a line and sing songs. Um, it seems If kind there of, are any Swedish listeners, please tell us if this is how you celebrate Christmas. A DVD uh, that's how Swedish people sometimes talk in my head. If you are Swedish, please excuse my partner. <laughs> please excuse my reference there. But, um, and you know, you would think it would be kind of strange for a director like Bergman, who had kind of a reputation for, you know, very dark, ser- serious movies like The Seventh Seal, uh, The Virgin Spring, Persona. But the thing about Fan Alexander, especially in this first act, some of it's very funny. Like, he has fart jokes. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah it's like what better way to for one of my favorite movies to have fart jokes in it um but <laughs> but the point is, is that the movie it has so much depth it has all of these great characters it goes between having very light moments and yet being very serious um i love movies that are very talky i mean bergman is also one of my heroes as a director in terms of having such a tremendous career built around exploring, you know, serious subjects, you know, especially, you know, the seventh seal is basically all about, you know, does God exist? And if he does, why is he so, so cruel, especially during the black plague, (laughs) which is, you know, quite a time to kind of question God and faith and all that. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, the seventh seal has its light moments too. Yes. Surprising. I know you've seen that. Yes, I have seen that. Thank you. Um, but Van Alexander, it's again, it's a long movie, but it has so many rich rewards. It actually has some very surreal moments, um, especially you know it deals with ghosts and it doesn't deal them in the kind of way that you know oh you know we'll easily throw this away as far as it being like 
oh, this is just this kid believing it. The movie kind of has a kind of supernatural kind of part to it. Um, and there's like there's like this uh, rabbi character who's kind of a supporting uh, character in the movie, and he has a really great speech about life and death that he gives to this kid. It's not a Bergman film until you talk about life and death. Pretty much, yeah. Um, but yeah, there's just so much. It's like the it's like the best most movie that I've seen. So it's again, a, it's a very dense film. It's uh, it is in a sense because of its length. But it's very easily watchable. Like it's a very entertaining movie, and it's a very yeah. engaging movie. Not what you'd expect from a foreign film that's five hours long. No, it's not. It's it's not a boring sit. I mean, I've had movies where, um, like, I don't want to get too much into this, but this past summer, I watched this movie from, oh god, I'm gonna say maybe Hungary, but I might be wrong, and it was it was this movie called Satan Tango. Uh, it was basically a movie... It was about a dance class in hell. There is some dancing in the movie, actually. Don't, right. don't laugh too much, but um, actually you can laugh a lot. Um, the movie is seven and a half hours long, and it's oh. not meant to be... It's meant to be watched at once, I guess, by the director. And I did spend a whole night watching this movie. That's almost a third of a day. Yes. It's a third of a day. It, and this movie was... Um, the thing is, the movie is... Uh, it's a, it's kind of a tough sit at times. It's very rewarding in some respects, but it's also like there are times where a shot will just go on and on and on. It's like a seven-hour movie that has 150 shots. You think about how long <laughs> shots are. So when I say Fan Alexander is a very entertaining movie at five hours, that's the kind of thing I mean. It's not a tough sit in that sense. You get so much to think about, so much to take in. And it gets richer with each time you watch it. Like, like I said, the first time I watched it, again, it, it was a three-hour version, which is a pretty long movie by itself. And yet, I felt like I was missing more of it. And then when I saw the full another two hours in the movie, I saw why because it's like, oof. Well, you certainly helped to explain why uh, why a five-hour movie is on your top five. But, uh, but yeah, but I do yeah. I recommend it. So hopefully, maybe one day you'll check it out. All right. Well, that leaves it up to me, my number one. Uh, and this time I've gone for a horror film, which we watched together. A long time ago. Yes, and this is my favorite horror film, one of my favorite movies of all time. And it's called The Haunting. When you're awake, don't say a word, say another word. Don't let it know you're in my room. Not the remake with Liam Neeson. I would hope that's not on the list. <laughs> uh, with the exception of Catherine Zia-Jones, I can't think of anything that would make that movie worth watching. No. Uh, this is much more worthwhile. It has... Uh, I'm trying to remember the cast. I Russ know... Tamlin from West Side Story. Thank you. Uh, Claire Bloom? I think yes. So. It's my favorite movie. I know all the actors. <laughs> uh, but it's the story of... it's. Probably the definitive haunted house movie, uh, and it's about four people in a New England mansion who are investigating it for ghosts, as you will. Uh, but 
the, what sets this apart and what makes it truly spectacular is that there is barely a special effect. There is you don't see anything. It's much there is nothing about, to see. It's much more about the characters and how they're interacting with this house and interacting with each other. Yes, the main character is Nell. She's this kind of uh, withdrawn sort of. I don't want to say stunted, but she's lived a sort of sheltered life, and she's yeah. been under the. Uh, she's been. Uh, she's had to stay with her mom for a very long time, up to recent adulthood, and she's living under this uh, pall cast by her mother's death. She's living with her sister and her family, who really don't seem to like her living there, and she sees this trip to this to this house as a way to get away and meet people and kind of have her own life. And she's extremely vulnerable from the start, and you throw her inside this haunted house, where, as, again, you don't see any ghosts, or you barely see anything supernatural. But what does happen in the house scares the crap out of you. Yeah. Uh, I, didn't ex- I didn't know what to expect. I had heard it was a good movie, but then when I saw it, and things started happening, it's just pounding on the wall, and I was holding my breath. I couldn't say anything, <laughs> because yeah. I was so tense. Right. And then, like, all the pressure, all the tension just lets out at the end of a scene, but you're still left with, what was going on in that scene? It is very mysterious. It um, is a very mysterious thing, because you you just don't see anything. Mm-hmm. And But still, it's the most effective ghost movie I've ever yes. seen. I, I should be honest here and say that the first time I saw it, I didn't love it as much as you did. I thought that, for me, it, it moved a little slow. And for me to say that, I know that, like... It, it means like I'm probably dead to you, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I I know I should give it another shot. Like yes, I saw you that should there definitely was, give it. There was another a lot shot. of really strong craft in the movie and a lot of thought into the atmosphere. I think maybe because of the the environment that we were watching the movie in, it maybe wasn't the best time. Maybe um, it was it, a movie night movie. It also seems hard for me, although I can take your word for it for a a movie to top The Shining as far as being, like, a definitive haunted house movie. Because that one, to me, is kind of, like, the one to sort of beat. You do have a point. And and there are similarities between both movies. I mean, it's about... Both The Shining... Yes, both The Shining and The Haunting are are movies where the house is a key character. You just don't see as much in The Haunting as you do in The Shining. And what you do see in The Shining is is very cryptic. And it's disturbing, but... uh, there are no explanations for what you see. Very few, anyway. Uh, but I still think The Haunting is the best horror film that I've ever seen. Oh, there you go. Uh, just a fantastic film. It certainly had... I remember it had really good acting, too. Yes, and it's... A, it's Like, you, you could take it seriously. It's not like certain horror movies. You can have fun watching it, but you can tell the actors are not... You know, they're, they're, just, have, they're just there to have a ball and to yes. have a good time and... You know, throw beach balls and smoke do, weed behind the yeah have the sex sets. you know and uh, <laughs> it's it's a it's a horror film from an er- another era that yes. that I think has been lost nowadays. Well, it's also I mean at the time that it was made too, it even took itself it tried to take itself a little more seriously than even other horror films at the time. Like you had like Roger Corman and you had William Castle doing horror movies in the early sixties. Well, William Castle, he did a lot of stuff in the 50s, but his stuff is very campy. Yeah, but but again, The Haunting isn't meant to be campy. No. The idea with The Haunting is that here's the situation, here are these characters, 
and let's actually explore it. Yeah. A lot of the a lot of the conflict comes from actually who the characters are. That's it. And the main character is not only vulnerable, but she's got she's uh, infatuated with the doctor. Oh who's yeah, yeah. With her and the uh, the other young man played by Russ Tamlin, mm-hmm. he's just this kind of flippant uh, rich kid. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's another woman who's. Uh, uh, it's like four What's characters, right? Yeah, four characters, and it's, uh, these characters play off one another, and they're very compelling mm-hmm. characters. And but the focus is Nell, the main character, yeah. and she is just she is so vulnerable that she has almost no chance in this sure. house. And it's just, and a lot of it just comes from the characters. You have to have good characters in a horror movie, otherwise. There's just nothing to be scared for, exactly. and there's no reason to care. Exactly. Yeah, you gotta have a reason to care. Yes. So, uh, and that's bi- and that's what makes those scares so so successful. There's very little jumping out at you. Yeah. There are very few loud noises. It's, it's all about well, I know this you, tension. Yeah, I know you don't like the jump scares. Oh god. And I don't. I've I've had enough of them too. Yes. Like even in, you know, even in movies that I like, when they have jump scares, I'm just like, oh come on, guys really oh congratulations you startled me yeah that's why at some point have you seen the conjuring no okay you, i heard from matt you should check you. out that movie is pretty excellent that's probably one of the better horror films of the past uh, few years and that that's more about tension and conflict of characters than just okay all right so let's talk about though something a little bit you, different your number movie. one my number one and it's been kind of my number one for a very long time uh or so to speak, if you put a gun to my head, uh-huh, it's good, fellas. See, now you're just staring at me. I was trying to make a joke, and now you're just... Like... So, good, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> if we had video here, you would see what Andrew just did. Good, fellas, I remember because it was a film that, when I went to college, was encouraged by the psychology department to see. Really? Yes, because in, it's in all about... Yes, I had seen it long, uh, just shortly before that moment, and okay. they said they were having a screening of Goodfellas, and uh, the psychology department was putting it on. It's like it's all about the influences you have when you grow up. Yeah. The main yeah. reason that um, what's the character's Henry name? Henry Hill. Henry Hill. The main reason Henry Hill becomes a gangster is because he is he is raised in a society where gangsters yeah. are number one. Exactly. Yeah. I mean uh, that that is what like. You know, the very first lines he has after the the credits roll is, you know, to me, being a gangster is better than being president of the United States. As far back as I can remember. Yeah, well, that's. I I always wanted to be a gangster. Yes. But, like, yeah, as far back as I can remember. I mean, he, uh, when you have a society and that's what you are kind of brought up with, when, you know, the whole idea, too, that, you know, when you're looking out your window and you're seeing these people who are blatantly. You know, even just in little ways, like, they, he watches at the beginning of the movie, this car, like, pull up, and, you know, all these guys get out, and he kind of mentions, you know, you know, they could park their cars, and the cops wouldn't give them a ticket. Yeah. I mean, that, to me, it's like, Scorsese sets up and really executes, throughout the movie, this idea, and he's done it in other movies, too, like Wolf of Wall Street, and, uh, and even Casino, to an extent. How could... You know, how can you judge this person so harshly if, you know, you could have been in this situation yourself? Right. A big problem with people, I think, I don't know if this is a problem, but I think one of the Mm -hmm. big reasons we, we look at criminals 
and we say, how can people do that? Like, how can you be such a jerk? Yeah. I mean, th- there is an entire world where nothing else matters except being powerful yeah. or being rich or having the most money. Mm-hmm. And you can judge them and you can prosecute them and you can arrest them. But in the end, it's when you grow up in that sort of environment, I mean, w- what else can you see? And that's exactly the point. You get into see, and that's the value of Goodfellas. You get to see into this world. That only Henry Hill can see, basically. Yes. Well, you also... But again, the part of the thing is that you can see it and it's relatable. It's not this abstract yes. thing where you have these characters and you can look down on them. Like, that was actually... Um, this is not to get off on a tangent, but actually connected with this. Um, you know, last year we had, you know, The Wolf of Wall Street, which is kind of like a sort of... Like, not, not direct sequel or anything like that, but kind of like a cousin movie to Goodfellas in the sense of being, again, about a character who's, you know, acting really wrong and doing all this stuff. And you could kind of contrast this with uh, the Michael Bay movie that came out last year called Pain and Gain, yeah, which was that. also about, you know, criminals who are engaging in, you know, really, you know, shady things. And But in that case, you know, you could see Michael Bay kind of almost in how he was presenting the movie, like, man, these guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. You know, they're, they're really... <laughs> You know, let's 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 make fun of them and laugh at them. Yeah. And Wolf of Wall Street, that's a kind of like a comedy movie. You can laugh at these people, but there is still that sense that you know, what if you know you're still looking at this person as a human being and you can find faults with them. And that's the beauty of Goodfellas. It's like, a, it's a gangster movie, and you know, you know, like. Uh, but it's not like wagging its fingers at the gangsters. Like, not not exactly. No. You, like Public Enemy. It's not yeah. a cautionary tale. No, and, and not only that, but by the end of the movie, you know, like, finally, you know, the Henry Hill, now I'm not, uh, I could say this is a spoiler, but it's also part of public record, I mean, this is based on a true story, he ended up ratting, like, his fellow gangsters out. Yes. And, um, you know, he had to go away to witness protection, and at the end of the movie, and this was also part of the book when he, you know, the movie's based on this book that Henry Hill dictated, um... You know, the worst thing to him was, you know, I have to give up this life. I yeah, have to go he, and live in this house and eat, like, egg noodles and ketchup when I used to get spaghetti and marinara sauce. Yes. You know, that's the worst part. You know, I I can't do this anymore. And I found that, like, that is so brave a move to do in a movie. It's just like, you know, yeah. you could say, you know, a character could would usually say, oh, I, I feel so bad about all these things I did and all these people I hurt and all this money I stole. And he's like, no. No, I feel bad that I'm not on top anymore. That yes. I'm not doing the things that and, I used to... And the world that Scorsese shows us is so vibrant. It is you can't, so vibrant. You can't help but be a little seduced by it. The whole, the this whole, idea that you, you, you're just this person of privilege in the criminal underworld, and you you can get whatever you want. Well, well we could well, talk about the iconic shot in the movie. Which, well, we could. Well, I mean, might as well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're here. Um... Um, of course, that is when uh, Henry Hill first takes uh, his future wife uh, to uh, check out this club, the Copacabana. Right. And it's all one, you know, long tracking shot. And he basically, instead of going through the front door, they're going through the back door. They're going through the kitchen, and then they wind up and they're at like the fronts of the of the club and watch, you know, Henny Youngman perform. And it's like this is the dream. This is like the American dream in. Uh, Incarnate. In fact, like to me, this is kind of like the ultimate American dream movie. Not even just about gangsters. It's about like mm. this is what people want to try to attain when they talk about 
you know, you can be whatever you want to be in the society. That's what we're kind of told when we're kids. This is kind of looking at that as, like, the dark side. Yes. But, and, you know, and, of course, there's murder and there's, you know, infidelity and there are drugs and there's prison. Um, and yet the people have a good time. And Scorsese doesn't shy away from that. Yes. And that's a sign of somebody who's actually trying to, you know, be, uh, be daring. And yet, you know... It's a very funny movie, too. Yes. Like, there's a lot in that movie I just find freaking hilarious. That's, you know, even from Joe Pesci, who's, you know, kind of like the evil character of that movie. Like, he shoots people he, uh, just for talking back to him. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and yet, he's also someone part of that world. You can kind of understand where he's coming from, yeah. in a way. Um, I think I heard this story once that a Goodfellas uh, played in New Jersey. Joe Pesci's film. I think so. Yeah, he's from the or area. Or around the area. And uh, his, his his friends from his hometown saw it, and he was like, yeah, that was just Joe being Joe. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the whole, I mean, the, the scene which has almost become kind of uh, mocked, I mean, it's funny that, like, when I saw Goodfellas, I was maybe, like, 12 or something, and my, my well, my mom watched it with me. So, All right. Th- th- that makes th- it okay, kids. That makes it okay. If, you're, if your mom watches a radar movie with you, it's okay. Uh, or, or, but part of the reason was that before that, um, Animaniacs used to have yes, the good feathers. The good feathers. Yes, that and was so, what threw me back. That first line. Yes. And I was like, oh my god, it's like my childhood <laughs> coming back. Yeah, I mean that's. <laughs> it's uh, uncanny how similar the voices were. Yeah, they got them pretty close. Yes, they got it pretty close. So that was my introduction to Goodfellas. Was the Goodfellas on yeah, Animaniacs? That was, that was um, me too. That's how awesome Animaniacs was. They could introduce me to Goodfellas before I saw it. All right, we um, shouldn't talk too much about Animaniacs, otherwise we'll be here till tomorrow. You got that right. But the right. point is, um, the first time I saw the movie, aside from having that connection, I thought that was like a mind-blowing moment. That like you're under this pressure that you know. Why am I funny? How, how am I fucking funny? Oh, jeez. Um, but then, you know, then you have this pause, and then he's like, get out of here. The, and yes. then, like, then they break up the tension. It's like, oh, I almost had him. But you don't know. Yeah. Watching it the first time, you're on the edge of your seat in that moment, and you don't know, like, you could be killed, even though you're part of that group just by saying the wrong thing. And that's, yeah. um, like, that might be, you know, by this point, that might be what the movie's kind of associated with, just that one line. But Yes. Um. But it's a tremendous movie. Like all the performances are great. Um, the com- the mix of comedy and drama. There's an entire set piece involving um, when Henry Hill is totally hopped up on drugs, and it's just going through one day where he's being chased by like a helicopter in the sky, and he doesn't know what it is, <laughs> and he's going from place to place trying to sell his drugs and sell his guns, and you know, and then he has to worry about his brother stirring like sauce. In his kitchen. <laughs> and again, it's like you have all this stuff going on, and yet you have, you know, that kind of thing going on. Yes. It's like my poor brother, he has to stir the, stir the sauce all day. I felt so bad for him. Like, he actually <laughs> says that. Um, that alone would make it, like, one of my favorite movies. Yes. Just that set piece, which is, you know, full of filmmaking that, again, energy and drive. It's not a movie that, you know, Oh, I, I did this bad thing. Again, almost like, you know, even more than, you know, when you watch Good and the Bad and the Ugly, the characters in that, you know, they, they're kind of villains, but they almost have this mythic status. Yes. Goodfellas makes it more like this is the guy around the corner. Yes. In a way. So, I see what you're saying about that. 
Yeah. I hadn't thought of it that way before. Yeah, it's a kind of... Of course, I have only seen Goodfellas once. Ooh. You're... <laughs> <laughs> we have, we'll have to correct that someday. Well, as soon as you watch Robin Hood. Touche. And that's, that's our top five. Thank you. Yes, that's our top five. Um, now, um, perhaps uh, maybe we can get into the next topic, or maybe we could take a quick break. Let's just pause this right here.